Hey everyone. Once again, we sadly need to start out the show with an in memoriam to someone who made a profound impact in anime and for us personally, especially as longtime fans of his work. And unfortunately, we sadly have to acknowledge that Kiyoshi Kobayashi passed away on July 30th due to pneumonia at the age of 89. And of course, Kobayashi we all know him best for his role as Daisuke Jigen, the iconic voice of Jigen for over 50 years in the Lupin franchise. He was the voice of Jigen for decades of the franchise and really did a lot to define that character in many of our minds. In addition to that, he had so many other really great roles I really love, like Crystal Bowie in Avenger Cobra, Avdol in the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure OVAs from the 90s, the narrator in Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory. Just a one-of-a-kind voice and actor. And it's just real saddening to lose him, especially in thinking back of how he had just retired from the role of Jigen last fall as Part 6 was coming. There was just a great tribute episode Part 6 began with that was just all about him reflecting on the role and what it meant to him, his relationship with it. Uh, and it's just, you know, I just am thinking back to that episode and then that is kind of just like him reflecting on his relationship with that franchise and then also just his own kind of career journey as an actor and him just throughout the years throughout the time to his role in the industry and it just deeply saddens me uh, as a fan of his voice and his characters god he vo he voiced him for 50 years that's insane yeah he was the oldest serving Lupin actor to stick with that same role for all that time in the franchise. And it's, it's incredible. I think, you know, I guess on him reflecting upon that experience, that is a truly rare thing for an actor to be able to do. And that is just so special. And truly, like, I think he just continued to grow into the role over the years. As <laughs> uh, his, you know, kind of world weariness, his grizzliness, tiredness, and his wife really definitely reflected and form uh, Jigen's characterization and personality. Oh, yeah. Uh, I truly think that the character was so much informed by his performance, and especially reflective in a lot of Jigen-focused entries in the franchise, and of course, like, episode zero of last year, so... No, yeah. I, I remember when I was like first getting into Lupin, I think around the time part four started airing and I, I checked that out as soon as it came on to Crunchyroll. And I think when I got far enough into that series, I started looking into, into the actors and uh, when I originally found out how old Kobayashi was at that time, I was like, he's that old? <laughs> and he's still voicing him? And he still sounds like this good? Like, I don't know. I just, I, I really, I really admire his work. Yeah. No, truly uh, an amazing talent. I hope he at least got to enjoy his retirement. Yeah, though he only retired last year or so. Yeah, but I do hope that he was able to enjoy that time. And he definitely deserved a good rest after, you know, just such incredible longevity of a career he had. No, for sure. And as always, we give out our sincerest condolences to his friends and family and of course, to all his many fans who are very much, you know, affected and a huge fan of his work for all these years. And, you know, we just want to give a moment of our time to pay respect to a truly one-of-a-kind talent and a moment of silence to pay our respects to him. Rest in peace, Kobayashi. We'll miss you.
dressed in black with slanted hat. No one knows what you see. Oh no, no, I've been with shaggy beard and chicks and scars. This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 211. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Romiyasha, and it's once again to check up on some new simulbooks and serializations as we're going to do a roundup of all the recent new additions to Shonen Jump and Manga Plus, as well as talking about Hiromu Arakawa's new series, Demons of the Shadow Realm, available on Manga and it is quite a collection of really interesting series and one-shots that we have to talk about today, and I am excited to get into them. Yeah, I'm very excited to get into some of these. Um, Some of these series, I'm just going to say right off the bat, were pretty good. And, you know, in, in getting ready for the episode, uh, I will admit I did procrastinate on my reading a little bit. So when it came to finally getting around to reading some of these and how much was already available, I was like, oh, man, how long is it going to take for me to catch up? But so, some of these I had, like, no problem really speeding through, actually. So um, I definitely have a lot of thoughts about some of these. But before we get into any of the newer stuff, I think it's time to talk about Chainsaw Man Part 2. Yep, we're going to kind of bookend our discussion here with two discussions of series that feature a character pair of uh, Yoru and Asa here. <laughs> and starting off with Chainsaw Man Part 2, the long-awaiting continuation of Chainsaw Man after a year and a half and after several really excellent one-shots, Tatsuki Fujimoto has returned to the series, but not in a way I think that we initially expected to start off for a fall follow-up to Chainsaw Man, where the first chapter begins in this classroom that is being assigned to take care of this chicken devil called Bucky, and we're just following it through the perspective of kind of the class loner, Asamitaka, who, you know, takes a long time to warm up for Bucky. She's not a very sociable person. But, you know, as it wins over the rest of the class with its, you know, chicken farm-based puns and sense of humor... 
And as they, over the course of the months, come to the conclusion, like, no, we don't want to kill Bucky. He's our friend. And they choose to keep it alive, which was the, what the teacher wanted them to learn, the value of life all along. It's at that <laughs> point where Bucky reaches out to uh, Awesome Dog and tells her, hey, come play with us, join us. And the fact that he says her name, the first time we learn our name in the chapter is when he says her name. It's like, oh, no one knows my name except the teacher in the class And then wins her over. But wouldn't you know it? Uh, she trips and she crushes Bucky. Horribly, all his guts are spilling out of his body. To the horror of her class, she vomits and passes out, and then she becomes the class pariah. I just have to say, really quickly, this moment made me audibly gasp. I was not yeah. expecting this. <laughs> it was great comedic timing, accentuated with just how gory his guts spilling out really is. But. You know, so she becomes even more isolated after that because everyone, you know, hates her after this incident. And she also has like self-depreciating thoughts of like, oh, it'd be better if I didn't exist or if I died instead. But, you know, she's reached out to one night by the class pres and her teacher. And they're like, okay, let's walk to Bucky's grave and pay respect together. But like on the way there, she kind of gets on the class pres's like bad side by saying, hey, we should kind of follow the street rules and not cross when like the crosswalk light isn't on. And that just kind of causes the class pres to snap and reveal that she has all this animal animosity towards her because the teacher treats her kindly even though he's sleeping with her uh, and then <laughs> she reveals she has made a contract with a justice devil and transforms grotesquely and basically kills Mataka but right as she's like being cut apart she sees like this creepy owl like creature that like offers to make a contract with her save her life and in that she basically accepts in her mind and so her body's kind of like reconstructed resurrected and she's possessed by the war devil who proceeds to kill the class pres and the teacher and reveals that her plan is basically to amass a lot of weapons by transforming people into weapons because she can turn whatever belongs to her into a weapon and that includes people so she wants to turn a lot of humans into weapons in order to go to war with Chainsaw Man and make him woman nuclear weapons as she promises at the end first chapter and so the story from here has just been kind of Mintaka being forced to go along with the war devil's plan to scope out where Chainsaw Man is and basically joining her school's like devil hunter club making some new friends like becoming a team with like a girl who treats her very nicely like when she's like being bullied and hazed by like some of her classmates who like stick like a bunch of raw meat in her shoes Yuko her partner in the Devil Hunter Club is like hey you know wear one of my shoes you wear one of the shoes that only hurt half as much and stuff like that and so she shows her kindness and becomes a friend to her and then also as part of her group is Yoshida who we previously saw the series in the International Assassins arc we know his contract with the Octopus Devil so we knew he was like a high school student and this is his high school so the fact that he's here also lends credence to the fact that Chainsaw and Denji is there too, though we have as of yet not seen him in the four chapters that are out at the time of recording. So yeah, basically where this is is that Mitaka is just kind of being strung along with a war devil. <laughs> and to try and find Genji and then it's like making friends with Yuko and uh, we'll see where that is going but yeah no it's been a lot of fun so far again it's quite surprising that Denji has not shown up yet but I really am enjoying Mitaka's character she's like a socially awkward character in a completely different way to Denji but still like very much uh flustered and when it comes to like 
forming friendships with other people as also relationships with other people. Like, she's embarrassed out of her mind when the war devil, like, asks Yoshida to be uh, her boyfriend, <laughs> like, while well, in her body. And that just causes a big embarrassment when she's, like, teamed up with him later. But, yeah, so I think the character and dynamic between, again, Asa and Yorudia Knight is pretty fun here. And it makes me curious to see where it is going and, like, how long it'll take before we actually do see Denji. Or really, if this is very much kind of like a JoJo's or Pokemon Adventures kind of situation where, you know, we really are going to be following Mitaka as the protagonist for this new part of the story. And I'm sure Denji will come in, but he's not going to be the main focus again. It's really going to be on Mitaka and her character arc and journey, which uh, I'm very excited to see where it's going. Yeah, I think the further we get into this next, I guess, arc of Chainsaw Man, um, yeah, I, I think the more I'm okay with Denji, I guess, slowly handing his role of main character over to someone else. Like, I don't really mind if Denji's not the main character, because I think the world of Chainsaw Man is just that interesting, even when Denji's not on screen. Like, he's not the most interesting part of Chainsaw Man, weirdly enough. Like, I really do, like, enjoy just being in the world of Chainsaw Man and, you know, seeing these different characters and seeing them run into these different kinds of devils and monsters like i i I think the series weirdly can stand on its own without him so far as we've seen yeah i mean fujimoto still comes up with some really creepy and fun like devil designs like the justice devil uh, and then like the bat devil that we saw in the most recent chapter yeah so yeah like that aspect of it is fun and also it's just nice to follow the character of Mitaka. She's like, you know, in this like really difficult situation where she's kind of being forced to follow like the poor devil's aims and doesn't have any way to fight back because, you know, she's possessing her body. But also, you know, because she's like so socially ostracized after what happened, it is really nice and sweet to see her form a friendship with Yuko and that whole chapter with like Yuko like giving her one of her shoe and then her like running after Yuko all the way back to Yuko's home and then her giving the other shoe you know it's a very sweet sequence of like her forming this friendship that I hope does not you know go awry in this next chapter here where like Yuko gets killed off or something that would really make me sad I feel like she's gonna get killed off eventually it's just a matter of when yeah but so far, it's been very sweet, and it yeah. kind of reminds me of the friendship that is formed between the two characters in Look Back. Yeah, yeah. And similarly, you see Fujimoto indulging with Huddy Likes with, like, the big explosion with the War Devil, like, walking away from exploding the Justice Devil. Very similar. God, and after using her, her teacher's spine as a sword... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, like, at the end of, like, cutting off both their heads and, like, forking them kiss, like, hey, there's your happy ending that you wanted. <laughs> so, God. a lot of fun sense of, like, macabre humor in the series, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, so far, it's just more Chainsaw Man, and I'm really happy that it's finally back. I mean, you know, I, I've been really enjoying all of the different, like, one-shots that Fujimoto has been coming up with, you know, in the time we've been waiting for part two, but, like, you know, I'm just glad it's back because it's as good as ever. Like, I, I have no notes. It's it's good. I'm really excited to read more. I'm really excited to see where it goes. And I'm, I'm just really interested in seeing how long we're going to go without seeing Denji. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like, it's been really entertaining so far. So Chainsaw Man, great to have it back. And I appreciate that 
Fujimoto has gone in a, like a different direction and that's giving it fresh and interesting. So mm-hmm. very keen to be following it. But speaking of like Fujimoto's one shots, there was one more that came out before Chainsaw Man Part 2 that we haven't talked about yet. And that's just listen to this song, which he wrote the story for, but actually the art was done by Ojo Toda, who was an assistant of his. And he recently published To Strip the Flesh, which recently came out in English, which was a fantastic one shot collection. The centerpiece story being about a trans man basically finally coming out to his father and getting gender reassignment surgery and yeah so that was a really fantastic story and fantastic short story collection and yeah their art is also you know very very close to Fujimoto's you can tell like yeah, yeah. closely under him and in this one shot in particular I think he went the X amount to like mimic his style even more closely than his normal style that he does in his one shot work okay because his mimic of Fujimoto's art was so good that I genuinely thought they had the credits wrong for a second. I was like, this isn't <laughs> Fujimoto's art. Like, I, it was it was a really good recreation of his style. No, yeah, their styles are so similar. And in this one shot in particular, like, you would be really hard-pressed to tell that it was not drawn by Fujimoto himself. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, there are probably some subtleties that you could really pick apart. But overall, you know, just stylistically, very, very close. But basically, the plot of this one, it's like a much shorter one shot than the previous or the previous ones were like volume length this is just a 20 pager but it's a story just about a boy who confesses love to his crush to a you know love song he wrote and uploaded to youtube and she shares it with everyone online because she finds it hilarious and then it becomes a viral sensation because of a lot of random strangeness that happens in the background like floating fish flying by or ghosts and stuff in the background of the video and then so people start picking that apart and then they start over analyzing like his lyrics to find political and social messages and symbolism and things in the video he didn't attend and so then he writes like a second song and he insists for people to just listen to the song with that one and it's globally panned because it does doesn't really have the same weird qualities that caught people's interest first time so it loses people's interest and then he deletes his videos but his crush saved his first song and then just on the train like it's like kind of in her own way like comforting him by letting him know that yeah she did understand what the songs were about that they were about the, when he had sketched her in their middle school art class and that finally does make him that like at least she did understand him if she doesn't return his feelings so you know it feels kind of like a trap on Fujimoto's part to, for us to read into the story which is about <laughs> the futility of reading too much into art or media but you know it really does feel like Fujimoto's response to people overanalyzing his work particularly in the context of social commentary when it came to Chance the Man. I mean, the point made about, like, in the video, like, people are saying, oh, this is a commentary on American gun culture. Like, that bit in particular is very much, like, an actual point or analysis made of Chainsaw Man. Yeah, so, that was very specific. It really feels like a very direct commentary on the kind of comments he received on Chainsaw Man's previous works. And it's, like, his plea to readers, people to just, like, read his manga and enjoy it at face value and not really <laughs> read into or pay attention to any like subtext or stuff that he's like didn't intend and what he really intended you know like in the message of this video oh in this story it's like oh no it's like really personal stories like it all comes from personal things that I like and I think that's what he's like also trying to get across with both this and also with Goodbye Airy just the fact that you know Goodbye Airy was often like a criticism of the characters movie and that it's like why did you include this explosion here it's like well I thought it was cool and I liked it so it's, it's very much that 
similar re-emphasis at that point is like, you know, sometimes he just draws and he just creates stories with things that he likes. And so he just wants people to enjoy it on the surface of that rather than read into like the choices made in them. But yeah, I mean, this may be the trap of like, oh, is this what he's trying to say with this story? Is he getting us with this too? So, you know, it's just something to think about though. You know, and it's an interesting pattern between this and a message in Goodbye Airy and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, compared to all of his other stuff we've read so far, this one is easily the most straightforward story with a very straightforward message. Fujimoto just wants us to read his comics and enjoy them. I laughed really hard at the part where people are picking apart different parts of the video and somebody was like, when you translate the video in Spanish, the song denies the existence of God. <laughs> I laughed really hard at that. <laughs> There's all these kind of crazy, wild theories that you see people, like, really reach to <laughs> reinterpret a piece of media in, like, a way that ha- it has more profundity than it was intended. So that's pretty smart observational commentary that I wouldn't be surprised has actually been done with Chainsaw Man. I was going to say, that sounded so specific. Like, that sounds like something I would actually find online on Twitter, actually. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, but yeah, overall, again, I this was another thing that like, I remember hearing a bit about when it first premiered online, I just didn't have the chance to get to it until we finally talked about it for the show. I, I was definitely buckling myself in for another like 200 page one shot. So I was really surprised this one was like as short as it was. But uh, yeah, I don't know if I really have like much else to add overall. It's just it's obviously again, like I said, it's a very, it's it's a lot more straightforward than a lot of his other stuff. But it's I thought it was a fun little one shot. I thought it was interesting. I liked it. Yeah, no, it was a very sweet story, I thought, at the end, where, you know, he is happy that at least his crush did actually understand what he's going for and also shows. Like, it's great that a lot of these people, like, enjoyed it for their own reasons, right? But I think what makes the creator most happy is just when someone who's close to them can really recognize, oh, I understand where this is coming from. I appreciate that. So I thought that was very sweet. Overall, I mean, Fujimoto's works in general have just been just so stellar, like, you know, like usual. I, I, have, I have no complaints. Yeah, just fantastic stories just throughout this year with Goodbye Yeri, Just Listen to Song, and Chainsaw Man Part 2. So, man, what an incredible creative year for Fujimoto. Now we'll be moving on to kind of some other one-shots that are kind of addendums to other series. Starting off with is a Dr. Stone special one-shot story, which came out around the same time as the Ryuzui special episode. And so initially I was thinking, oh, it's, is it going to be more of an epilogue focused on Ryuzui? It's not really. It's like kind of an epilogue to a series. It's them basically recreating all of their like scientific advancements like in a shorter period period of time in the challenging setting of like being adrift at sea the premise of this is that senku and ko you know just they find themselves adrift and see in the bermuda triangle after the plane that was hosting taiju and yuzuhiro's honeymoon that they all tagged along with <laughs> just because you know well they were going to go collect something but it's like kind of wild that they all joined them on their honeymoon it's more fun that way yeah well anyway <laughs> the plane crashes due to lightnings so slowly but surely you know they start collecting up all the 
companions and they make use of their tools and natural resources like they capture lightning uh, so you like the tip of palm trees to the principle of like St. Demo's fire to like revive uh, to get some nitric acid to like revive people and then they start using their resources to make like a makeshift rap boat that begins more and more elaborate by the time they reach back home to Japan with like the, what they needed to collect which is like high purity silicon metal from Norway that they need to make semiconductors that they need for their next mission which is terraforming other planets constructing space cities in pursuit of the resources they need to make their time machine so i don't know if i have too much to say this one other than you know it's kind of like a fun encapsulation of a lot of the greatest hits and highlights of dr stone in terms of scientific discovery and just also just a new challenge of like oh how are they gonna collect all these resources to revive people and make their way back home like literally starting out from being adrift at sea so that's a fun situation it is this kind of ended a wild idea of like, oh, they're going to go to other planets and terraform them, which, you know, already Dr. Stone has stretched like uh, a lot of the credulity of like their scientific advancements and how fast they've done things. So yeah, we'll see if they can achieve that in their lifetime. It is, you know, a manga, so of course they could. But yeah, it's a fun thing. And then I guess the only real like, character notes that I found interesting is that I'd seen like there was a moment where they were like shipping Kahaku and Senku because Senku revives Kahaku first and and she's like, oh, Senku, you know, I know you could have easily just carried me around petrified to be more safer that way. But the fact that you revived me shows that there's a level of trust. And, you know, they cut it off there. But it seems like, oh, that was like a ship tease moment. It's <laughs> like very one sided. I feel like oh, it's smart. Uh, and then I guess I just like the fact that Zeno like really believes in Senku that he would get himself out of that situation and come back home. And that he was like tirelessly searching for them for like the months that they were adrift at sea or whatever. So those are like the two character notes that I found really interesting. But uh, yeah, otherwise, uh, I think it was just like a fun little epilogue to Dr. Stone, but not super additive. Yeah, um, my only thought was that now this is more Dr. Stone and that's fun, I guess. Like I, I wasn't like I like I thought it was fun, but I, I think like you, I don't really have like a whole lot to say about this other than, you know, considering like what they're trying to go for as far as like what their next goals are, you know, like you said, terraforming the planet to try to find uh, materials for their time machine. You know, honestly, this one shot just kind of makes me feel like, man, I actually kind of wish Dr. Stone had kept going. Like, I understand, like, why it ended and where it ended where it did, but this just kind of made me feel like, oh, if Dr. Stone wanted to keep going, I think it could have. I don't know. It just kind of made me want more Dr. Stone, actually. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like it opens the door to the potential of, like, of more science fantasy type setting for Dr. Stone, where they're, like, going off into space and exploring different planets and just figuring out how to terraform them to livable environments. So, you know, that, I guess, opens the door for potentially doing a follow-up story if they ever think about it. But also, you know, the story seemed to reach kind of its natural conclusion in them, like, reaching the goal they had from the beginning of, like, getting to the moon, discovering, like, the secret of the petrification and all that. So, yeah, I don't, like, need more, but I guess, like, oh, well, there is potential for more story based on the concept they're going with. I guess my feelings are that, um, and I'm not sure, I think we talked about this on the show when it ended, and I'm not sure if I got my thoughts across as clearly as I wanted them to, because I, I feel like at the time I wasn't entirely sure how I felt 
about the ending for Dr. Stone. Like, I think when we originally talked about it on the show, the ending made me feel like I wanted more, like, with this one shot. Like, I, I feel like I had a bit of an issue with the way, like, the Y-Man stuff ended, because I kind of feel like in the grand scheme of things, I kind of wish that maybe, like, obviously, the hunt for Y-Man was, like, the biggest goal of the story, and that was ultimately concluded, and I understand that, but I almost kind of feel like with the introduction of them wanting to visit other planets and make a time machine, I kind of would have appreciated it if, like, Y-Man was, like, their first goal, you know, like, mm. I kind of wonder if maybe if like, I would have liked Dr. Stone more if it had kept going a little while past that where it's like, oh, why man, why man is just like the first step to like a bigger story, I guess I, I feel like in retrospect, I'm not sure if I really like how why man was like the only goal. And that's like, after they reach that goal, it just kind of ends. Like, I, I guess in retrospect, I don't know if I really liked the ending in that respect, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was fine because... You know, that was the destination they were going for from pretty early on. That's but true. I, get, I see, yeah, your point is that, well, you know, I guess there is a sense of anticlimaxism because, like, it is a big moment to, like, meet, like, this alien machine thing and then have this kind of first contact and then resolve that situation. But, like, yeah, I guess you would want to see even more in terms of them rebuilding. Uh, or, like, I get, I also felt like, you know, the final acts of Dr. Stone were rushed in terms of, like, visiting all the different countries yeah. and rebuilding those cultures and civilizations. So that was, like, my kind of feelings of wanting there. Like, my dissatisfied feelings about how Dr. Stone was kind of paced towards the last stretch. And I could definitely see also the idea of like well when you open up this idea that you're going to make this time machine to go back and save all the people well, I guess that is also something that I would like to see I, it's fine to also leave that open ended to think about all oh, the potential of that possibility but yeah. it also feels like well then is the story really over because are all the loose friends really wrapped if now you're opening up this potential for like where things could go next yeah so. it, it just kind of felt like to me by the end a Y man felt like their first goal in like a bigger story i guess like i guess in retrospect it just feels weird that like that was the goal of the story and now we potentially have other goals that we want to strive for that are arguably i think much more interesting and much more grander in scale i guess i guess it's just the way i feel yeah, I mean, going to the moon and having first contact with an alien life form is pretty big. That is pretty big. But no, I, I yeah. mean, also, it is even bigger to, like, <laughs> go to other planets and tear for them to mine natural resources to create a time machine. So yeah, yeah. There's, like, levels of escalation for Dr. Stone to have gone that could have been interesting. But, yeah. I guess that that's the only, I, if anything, like I said, this one shot just made me feel like, oh, I, I kind of just want more Dr. Stone, weirdly. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it almost makes me, it almost makes me feel like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure if I really agree with, like, where it ended now, like, in retrospect, but that's just how I feel personally. Otherwise, I thought the one shot was fun. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I don't know. Th this just makes me really interested in, like, when we finally eventually maybe do, like, a Dr. Stone episode, because I feel like that has to come eventually, because I really want to know how I feel about this series on, like, a reread, especially. For sure. On the subject of endings, as well as, you know, continuing on our train of talk about one-shots, Soko Geku no Sanji has been a series been following since late 2019. Oh, man. And now <laughs> it has finally reached its conclusion. With its sixth chapter, it has, like, enough chapters for a full volume's worth that... I'm sure it'll get published pretty soon here. But yeah, now it's kind of officially concluded with this chapter. Basically, this chapter brings Shokugan Sanji full circle. 
It flashes back to Sanji's early years on the Baratier, training under Zeph as a child. Before he became a great cook, he would, when, when he was still a cook's apprentice, experimenting with emulating Zeph's cooking and making his own dishes. You know, his cooking is not yet up to snuff, even though the restaurant's rats turn up their noses at it. <laughs> But Sanji's desire to earn his fellow chef's respect is, you know, tied in with his backstory of being looked down upon by his siblings in Germa and his desire to not run away from the kitchen, unlike how he ran away from home, because he doesn't want to run away from his battlefield, the kitchen. He wants to stand his ground there. So a regular customer lady who, you know, he is like flirting with a lot when he's like serving tables, she calls to request an entree from him specifically, and Zeph agrees to it under the condition that if it's not up to the Baratier standards, the dish won't go out and Sanji will have to beg the customer's forgiveness on his hands and knees. So the customer asks for a red meat dish and Sanji decides to make like scarlet red ram. But on the day of serving, some of his fellow jealous chefs like steal the lamb he was going to use in the dish. And since he can't simply use a different meat, he decides to butcher lamb meat straight from the carcass. And the carcass of the red ram, it has like a layer of fat that's like as hard as armor. It's so thick that usually only Zeph can butcher it. But Zanji is able to butcher the meat by remembering how Zeph did it and emulating him and also kind of making use of like that swordplay technique he honed during his upbringing in Germa. It's kind of hinted at early on the chapter when a customer like notices, hey, you're really good at like those swordplay skills. So were you training that and stuff? But yeah, so that's a... Fun little application of that there. But Sanji, you know, pulls the dish off and it's so good that it makes his customer see a vision of himself as a hot, mature man with a goatee and long, wispy hair. And it is very, very sexy. But the <laughs> chapter ends flashing forward a few years to when Sanji has just been promoted to the Brate sous chef and has been on edge and is reflecting on his childhood dream to find all blue. And the final shot of the chapter basically sets to say circularly for the first chapter of Cooking Anchor Sanji with him like lying on the deck and like the same spouse smoking cigarettes and everything is like the first panel we see him in uh, Shokugeki no Sanji chapter one so oh, that was okay. a kind of like neat little bow to the series here it's like kind of takes us right back to the beginning in a way so yeah I think it was a very cool story to kind of look at Sanji before he became like the master chef he is today like when he was still in training and like his first real success as a chef and making a dish that like really blew his customers clothes off (laughs) literally and of course in the traditional food wars way so yeah and you know it touches on some nice things about like him it kind of tying him both like you know his tutelage under Zeph as well as his experience under German and how both of those things ultimately helped him grow as a chef, which I thought was kind of nice to type both those things in. Yeah. And yeah, so I thought there's a really just good character study for Sanji as most of these Shokugeki Sanji chapters are. And, you know, just a nice satisfying kind of bow to the series here. Yeah, this was a pretty good last chapter of Shokugeki no Sanji. And like you said, I I really like the way they tie in his past with Germa and his experience at the Baratier. You know, that's the kind of thing I was really wanting from like the original series. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, we probably said this a million, million times, but I'm going to say it again. Shokugeki no Sanji... I think is a pretty good One Piece spinoff, again, in that it takes the character of Sanji and really, like, takes the time to showcase and explore the more interesting parts of his character that, again, the main series either just doesn't have the time to or just isn't interested in doing, unfortunately. So, you know, if you're looking for good Sanji content, it's right here. Yeah, especially taking a look at Sanji as a chef in a way that the series has kind of not been able to do recently. 
you know, like really focus in on him, his skills as a chef and like his relationship to food and like his desire to like make good food for customers. You know, that's something that I really appreciate about the series, being able to focus in on that aspect of Sanji outside of, you know, his battle prowess as the main series now more squarely focuses on. So, yeah, I really appreciated this series for that and thought it was just a great collection of stories to look and check in on him at different points in his character arc for sure um yeah this was interesting because after the last chapter we got which i i think was in wano if i remember correctly Mm -hmm. you know i was kind of wondering like what else they were going to do with this because uh, I guess I just wasn't entirely sure like where else they could go with this. So I'm really glad they took the opportunity to like to do a story that takes place during Sanji's childhood at the Baratier because yeah, especially since that's such an unexplored part of this history. Yeah, I feel we have seen not a lot of that. And we've only really kind of gotten inklings of what that time was like. Yeah, pretty much. I think during the Baratier arc and then a little bit in Whole Cake, and I think that's about it, as far as I can remember. Yeah. I mean, when we see Sanji as a kid working in the Barati, it really has only been in, like, flashes. We never really got a story like this that was, like, really focusing on him, like, learning and developing his craft during that time. Mm-hmm. So that's a really nice thing about this story, that it, it gives us a glimpse at that. Mm-hmm. I also think it's really interesting how... Because, you know, there are moments in this story where, like, you know, Sanji really, really wants the approval of Zeph and wants to show him how good of a cook he is. And I think that's partly due to the fact that, you know, his piece of shit father never, uh, never really gave him any kind of, like, validation whatsoever. Yeah, it's, like, explicitly kind of made clear that, like, Sanji wants to earn the respect of Zeph and the other chefs because, you know, he's tired of being looked down upon what his experience being looked down upon by his brothers and father so the fact that he can like earn the respect and admiration of a surrogate family in a way he couldn't quit his biological family is another sweet aspect of the story yeah i thought that was a pretty interesting little like breadcrumb for his character there um i also really appreciate that shokugeki no sanji has finally given us what we've been wanting for this entire (laughs) run and that is patty and carne fan service yeah God, his <laughs> Patty's <laughs> stupid Popeye arms. I keep I keep forgetting those are a thing. Ah, oh, God, yeah. I I actually laughed out loud uh, when we when we got to the uh, the obligatory food war Shokugeki no Soma fan service spread. I'm I'm so glad we got to we got fan service for them. That was pretty great. Um, yeah, overall, um, I think, like you said, um, I hadn't had a chance to, like, go back to that first chapter, so I didn't know it was, like, circling back around, so that's pretty cool, but, man, I, I, I think that last page is still really powerful, though, where, like, he's thinking back on his time as a kid in captivity, wearing, like, like, the helmet and everything, and, like, as a kid, finding out about the all blue, and then him just sitting outside the Baratier, just looking wistfully about hoping one day that maybe he can find the all blue like that. Mm-hmm. It was it was such a weirdly like somber note to go out on, but I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's like reflecting on the fact that Sanji has now achieved like a lot of success as a chef, but he's very dissatisfied because he still is not chasing after what his dream is since childhood, which is like a whole thing that Steph recognizes and like what is kind of the, the tension in the broad arc of like, getting him to be convinced to go with Luffy in pursuit of that dream. 
So, yeah, I like that. I like ending on that note. This really makes me hope that when, I mean, first off, I, I really hope that, like, when Sanji eventually gets to the all blue in the actual story, I really hope it's as satisfying as it can be. Like, I really want that for Sanji at this point, because, like, not just him, but I feel like a lot of the other Straw Hats just really don't get a whole lot of time, like, for them to be actual, like, three-dimensional characters anymore, at least since the last time I read anyway. I don't know if that's really changed since when I stopped reading. So I could be wrong, but I don't know. Yeah, I would like to see them actually achieve their dreams in the story. Yeah. And, and not just be like kind of confined into like rapid fire montage. Where are the they now? For the final <laughs> chapter. Yeah, I would like them to happen over the course of this final arc rather than like be saved like all to the end. Just in a, again, like montage sequence, because I think that would be a disservice to their characters. So. Yeah, I mean, that goes into a whole other thing about like, man, I'm really genuinely kind of afraid that Oda is going to have to cut corners on some of this final arc in order to like shave things down. But I, I mean, I guess we'll have to see. Mm hmm. But overall, Shokugeki no Sanji, I pretty much enjoyed it all the way through. I'm Again, as we've talked about, I think some chapters are better than others. But like, I think in terms of like any One Piece spinoff we could have gotten, I thought this was pretty good. Yeah, I think that the first chapter had some weaker elements, some fat shaming elements in this and like some messages that weren't so great that were unintentional. But then every chapter after that was like really, really excellent in terms of character study of Sanji and just also really fun concepts. And again, checking in on him at different points in the story. And it even has the best version of Sanji and his relationship with the folks of Kamabaka Queendom. So yeah. <laughs> it's a better version of his time there than was depicted in the main series. So it has that strength going for it too. So yeah, really excellent story that kind of does more for Sanji's character than like a lot of recent One Piece, or at least a lot of One Piece during the time it was running. The, the past 10 years of One Piece. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Full Kick Island did some good stuff with Sanji. That's fair. I'm a lot more mixed on how his character was handled in Wano, though some people may disagree with me on that. But I will say that I, I was more satisfied with what we got out of Sanji's character in this story, in this series. I don't, yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. He did have some good moments in that arc, but... Yeah, but even then, I think his skills as a chef were underserved. We didn't get as much focus as we would have liked on them, even though, you know, part of the climax of the arc is him baking that big wedding cake for Big Mom to eat that, like, kind of calms her down and stops her from a rampage. Like, we didn't get even enough focus on them actually making the cake, so... Yeah. I, that's what I liked about the series, is that we really do get to spend time with Sanji, like, really focusing on honest cooking and thinking about how to prepare dishes and what's going into them and like what he's trying to do to satisfy his customer and that's what i really appreciate about looking at that aspect of his character and that's fair i, I don't mean to turn this into a whole of the one piece discussion but i think my thing with whole cake looking back on it is that sanji has good moments in that arc I don't want to say he doesn't have anything good in that arc, because I think that'd be a total lie. But I also do think, looking back on it, while Sanji has good moments, I do think Oda spends so much time on, like, certain aspects about his character, like, for instance, like, how kind he is to people and everything, which I, I think is good. But I think he's, he spends so much time on aspects about his character that I'm not sure if people were, like, 
as interested in like I think what you brought up like I think his relationship with cooking and how that could have played a part in like you know baking the wedded cake for big mom I think would have been a lot more interesting to kind of dive into so I think it was just a matter of what Oda himself I guess was interested in uh, exploring with Sanji in particular that maybe I just don't agree with personally but that's just me yeah but yeah overall Shokugeki no Sanji um again I liked it and it's just kind of weird to see it come to an end. I am going to kind of miss having a chapter of Shokugeki no Sanji to look forward to every once in a while, actually. Yeah, it's been nice, uh, especially over like this last year and a half, really, is when we've been getting all these follow-up Shokugeki no Sanji chapters. So I am a little sad to see it come to an end, but I thought it was really good exploration of the character and would love to see more projects like it that kind of take a character and really explore them in another light that we don't get to see often in the main series. But that about does it for our talk of Shonen Jump, Saimo Pubs, and One-Shots. Now we're moving on to Manga Plus, and we have one Manga Plus one-shot to talk about. Which, Speaking of interpretations of characters, this is a one-shot that is like a tie-in to the new Nintendo Switch uh, Jump Plus game, Captain Velvet Meteor. The Jump Plus mentions the beginning, story by Ronaldo Wurz and art by Masato Ichishiki. And basically the plot of this one-shot, and I presume the game, is that it's about things this French-Japanese kid who is moving from France to Japan to live at his maternal grandmother's house, and he's anxious about a brooding and making new friends, and, you know, he's kind of an antiquated understanding of what Japanese culture is like. Like, he thinks, you know, the men still need to be samurai, and you have to get sekuku for failure. <laughs> he's a little correct about Japanese people, like, kind of uh, being weird or avoiding foreigners. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, mainly his main interaction with Japanese culture is that he loves anime and video games. And, you know, he's kind of dealing Dealing with the situation of like moving and his anxieties about it by channeling his experiences into the fantasy of being this character he created, Captain of a Meteor, which he draws, you know, the adventures of and imagines the adventures of, you know, along with his flowing uh, box robot psychic JP. And yeah, he basically uses this character as a way to see his situations through kind of this sci-fi science fantasy lens and kind of extrapolately understand and confront his fears and these challenging situations. So for for example, like he imagines his plane flight to Japan as him like crashing on a new planet, and then he imagines like his dog Lucian being aggressive after its trip to Japan as like him confronting a monster. And in addition to like imagining himself as this like hero character, he also imagines himself being helped by like jump plus heroes. So like in this one shot, he's helped by Kafka from Kaiju Number Eight, and he basically lays out I guess like the monster system in the game of like they're like giant boss monsters that are called base monsters, and then they're like mini boss monsters that are like after beasts but you know basically the idea is that he's like imagining his favorite jump plus heroes helping him out in these sexual situations he's viewing for the realm of you know the sci-fi fantasy while dealing with them actually in his real life like because we see in this fantasy he's teaming up with Kafka to like fight back in this monster and then we check him back in reality and he's kind of diffused the situation with his dog and like calmed him down and he's like thinking to himself like you know I'm not gonna be scared anymore because uh I'll just think of myself as like Captain Velvet Meteor and confronting these situations so I think it has like kind of a a sweet premise of like you know this kid is being helped through like these difficult adjustments in his life by just imagining himself as a hero and taking through his problems with that lens and then being helped by some of his favorite characters so uh, I think that's a charming aspect about it 
I think that the artist did a good job of like having fun with Kafka and his design. And it kind of does make you want to see like, well, how would they, you know, go about telling a fuller story with him meeting all the other like characters in the roster of the game? You know, all the other protagonists from the other series that are included in the game. But yeah, it's a one shot that's like kind of just meant to kind of introduce you to the concept of the story. Like, again, I think it's a nice premise and it's a cute read. Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. When I saw this was on the docket of stuff we were going to talk about for this episode, I I had very low expectations because I'm kind of wary about like manga one shots that are like tie ins for like big franchises or video games or whatever, because those things just don't normally interest me usually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, reading this, um, I thought it was pretty sweet. I like the idea of this kid coping with, you know, moving to an entirely different country, like you said, through these like different sci-fi concepts and adventures. I think that makes for a very sweet idea for a story, something that I think kids could really get into as like, a, oh man, I this is this is what I do or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's pretty relatable. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, as a kid, you imagine yourself like being partnered with or going on adventures with your favorite characters and stuff, you know, kind of making your own OC that travel and play alongside them in these stories so i think it kind of draws on that in a very observant way and again the fact that again it's it's rooted in like this kid using this to help himself kind of interpret and work through kind of these emotionally difficult situations he's in uh, is a very charming thing so I, I think it has a nice you know premise to it yeah, yeah. And I can get behind it, though. I, I'm not entirely sure, like, how well it executed this as far as, like, you know, how one to one some of these situations are. Because at first, when this starts happening, like, because you, you see him kind of like, I think he draws Captain Velvet. Yeah, I know he draws Captain Velvet. It's a character that he, like, draws on his, like, you know, like iPad, iPad or thing? whatever. Yeah, yeah it's just a sketch program. So it's like a character that he draws and he imagines the Avengers of. And then he also is, like, imagining this in his own mind when he's, like, in these situations. Because so. in that moment, it looked like he got, like, transported through the game. So That's just, like, a fantasy kind of thing of, like, him imagining himself, like, literally being transported uh, into the realm of, you know, Captain it's not him like literally <laughs> being transported. That's what I thought so. happened at first. Yeah, I genuinely thought he got like transported through the game and he was going to have to like learn a big life lesson through the game or something, which I guess he kind of did. But still, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, a part of me wasn't entirely sure like how one to one some of these situations were supposed to be in. Like, I don't know if the Captain Velvet stuff like 100% fully connected to like what Damien's going through in real life. That might just be like a nitpick on my part. Yeah, I mean, I don't exactly know like what the one to one of like him and Kafka beating the monster translates to him like calming down his dog you know exactly how the actions mirror so it's like they're like what he's imagining is not like a direct mirror of what is happening yeah but it's like an inspired by what's happening so like i guess you can interpret that oh him destroying the monster in this fantasy is like him kind of confronting his fear of like kind of going to just hug and calm down his dog so it's like kind of just a representation of fear more so than it's like literally he's like beating up his dog or whatever <laughs> Uh, that that'd be a lot more messed up, but <laughs> no. 
Yeah, so that was kind of my only issue with this one shot. Otherwise, um, again, I, I can get behind being a kid and forming any kind of escapism to try to like cope with like the reality of your situation. Like, I, I think that's a very real, genuine thing that I wasn't really expecting from a one shot that's supposed to be an ad for a video game, you know? So I thought this was cute. I, I enjoyed it. I didn't dislike it as much as I thought I was going to. So I'll give it that. I'm probably not going to play this game, though. <laughs> Just because I'm, I'm I'm not sure how interested I am in actually playing like the real game, but that's just me. I'm not disinterested in the game, but I also have not played a game uh, in months, and I rarely have time to do so. Oh, so hey, I probably I, won't I, pick I it that. up. But. Um, I mean, from from what I understand, like the actual game is like just kind of its own thing, but like just kind of has jump plus characters slapped onto it. That's what I've heard, but I don't know if that's like right or not i don't know i haven't played it myself so i don't know yeah it's based on the trailer it seems like they are like assist characters for you yeah in the game but it really is about like the original characters and situations so much as it's not like you're fighting i guess through the worlds of the jump plus series yeah because when i originally saw ads for this game i'm not gonna lie at first i thought this was gonna be like the smash brothers clone with the jump plus characters like we saw in hokkaido girls mm, uh, th- yeah. that's what i thought it was at first so i was really disappointed when i I found out that it wasn't that <laughs> but but i guess this is as close as we're gonna get never say never maybe they will one day make a full-fledged smash style fighting game based on jump plus it's certainly growing more and more in prestige and with more titles that are getting popular and recognized so there could one day be the potential there to do that maybe i mean look if they come out with something like that i'll, I'll play it look i loved jump ultimate stars you know growing up in middle school I, I played that shit all the time so i i would love to have another game similar to that but with jump plus characters i think that'd be really cool yeah, especially something more like Jump Ultimate Stars than, say, Jump Force. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see a realistically rendered Lloyd Forger going against a realistically rendered uh, Kafka from Kaiju Number 8. I don't know if I really want that again. Yeah. Um, But we should probably get to the rest of our Manga Plus stuff. Yeah, we have four new titles that were added to Manga Plus in the past two months or so. The first of them being You and I Are Polar Opposites by Kocha Agasawa. This is a really cute rom-com series about this girl, Suzuki, who's, you know, a very popular, sociable, and fashionable girl. And she has a crush on her studious and serious seat neighbor, Tani-kun. But at the beginning of the series, you know, she's kind of having trouble, you know, being honest with how she feels about him and communicating with him. Like, she can only really communicate and talk to him by, like, asking him about stuff that she knows he wouldn't know how to talk about. But, you know, just, you know, is a way to be able to talk to him and, like, tease him. But she admires Tani because he always speaks his mind and never puts on airs. He doesn't worry about fitting in. And she really respects that as someone who has trouble about being honest about what she wants and how she feels. Because she's too worried about how other people think of her and deviating from the status quo and how people will see her. But she, you know, also worries about, like, not being cute in front of people, too. But, like, one day when they're going home from school late, like, she goes home with Tani and asks them out for burgers and they hold hands. And then the next day, her classmate Yamada is, like, grilling her about whether they're going out because his friend uh, <laughs> observed him, Gapacho, uh, <laughs> observed them walking home. But, like, you know, she gets very, like, nervous and subconscious about it and kind of blurts out it's not what you think when Tani enters the room. And then he later, like, calls off their hangout plans because he thought you know, he misread how she felt and stuff. And so when thinking that over, like she like kind of just blurts out to her friends that she does like Tani uh, and then just outlies her feelings to them and they encourage 
encourage her to go run after him. And so she does. And then he she just yells out like unquestionably like how that she likes him and just lays out all her feelings about him and then you know he tells her that he also you know really likes her too and then they basically start dating and then the manga just continues to explore their relationship and their friend group and they kind of navigate like awkwardness and relationships and it's of like how to be a good girlfriend or boyfriend like holding conversations worrying about appearances and taking pictures doing things outside of their comfort zones and their partner is interested in and thinking about what they like fitting the image that that their partner sees them as or communicating their feelings clearly and understanding each other better or feeling jealous of other people or of being close or knowing your partner better than you and then also when or who to tell about the relationship and yeah just situations like that that are very charming and relatable and kind of nice to see the characters like works through and just communicates through and yeah it's just a really really funny series like the art is so expressive i like how the artist is really able to really exaggerate the characters in fun ways especially suzuki she has like a lot of really funny faces and expressions like she gets super deformed in really nice ways they're not afraid to have her like have like really wild ugly take expressions you know be like both really pretty looking but also very gremlin like so i like that flexibility in i guess i was character designs and i love the supporting cast that has developed there are a lot of really fun characters like yamada who's like an easygoing but very dense guy who gets along with everyone and really likes to make people who have like different personalities in his smile like people who are like more kind of quiet and like maybe not as like amiable like he takes an interest in this girl like Nishi who's like a very socially awkward person but like he can't really recognize why or when he has like interesting feelings to someone so he's like very kind of sincere in that way but also like kind of oblivious in a charming way so that's a fun character to follow uh, i like boda suzuki's friends who are like very kind of different in temperament like watanabe is like more excitable and kind of really blunt in a goofy way rosato is just much more serious and blunt in kind of like a caustic way like she chastises suzuki for wearing like ridiculous outfits like this like really see-through like mesh outfit but one point so she has a fun personality she's a lot similar to Tani in temperament there's Azuma who's like Suzuki's friend who has a history of falling for loser or garbage dudes because she likes the rebels more than sincere guys like a boy who she thought ghosted her but was actually tossed in juvie <laughs> and uh she is also trying to get Suzuki to hook her up with her brother even though Suzuki thinks her brother is trash uh and then there's Tyra who is like kind of an in, he starts out kind of like an insilly guy and in how he thinks because he doesn't understand like what kind of guys girls fall for and thinks that girls only care about like superficially following the social pyramid and flaunting relationships. So he's kind of taken aback by Suzuki and Tani's relationship and then comes to recognize by just asking Suzuki what she likes about Tani that like he is just projecting his own insecurities and prejudice because he has like no personal values so or identity outside of understanding his place in the social pyramid. So he's kind of an interesting character is like he doesn't have like completely mean-spirited intentions but he also you know has a kind of warped understanding of relationships and way of thinking about them and people are like often telling up dude you should have a higher opinion so for like dude like no that's not the situation at all when he's like saying oh the girls fall for bad boys now and everyone's like dude no 
don't say that so bluntly, like you, and stuff like that. So he's a fun character because he's like standoffish, but also he does want to feel part of the group. So like one fun thing is that he works at the convenience store near everyone's like houses because he didn't want to run into his old middle school classmates. But of course, running into his high school classmates and like he gets annoyed when like Suzuki and Yamada are like kind of hanging around in the convenience store and tries to like chew them out. But when Tani comes in, it's like not asking him any questions about why he's working there. He gets frustrated about like not being asked anything. So he's like a, a fun character. And then, yeah, there's also, again, like, Nihi, that socially awkward girl who is a very relatable character to me and how she's not, like, she has problems interjecting and holding conversations with other people. But even though she enjoys other people's conversations and their humor and wants to, like, participate in them. And it's kind of inspired by Tani's example of that fact that he's also kind of a, you know, stoic type person, but also is, like, very kind of comfortable around other people to kind of follow an example and try and kind of get over social anxiety and of course you know uh, Yamada takes interest in her and so they're starting up a relationship uh, and yeah so a lot of fun characters and situations like that and I just think it's just a really funny charming rom-com so far you know I just love seeing especially Suzuki and Tani kind of works through their relationship and their anxieties like they both have very similar anxieties they're like am I you know boring the person I like or am I thinking about them and what they want to do am I putting on a good appearance to be the kind of person they're interested in or they really like so they have I like that the series gets inside both of their heads and their kind of anxieties as they're entering the relationship and like trying to be a really good partner for the other and then also very quickly kind of working through any misunderstandings so just really nice communication and just the nice moments between them and again the art is so playful and inventive like I really love the eight chapter where they're doing a summer festival and there's some really fun uses of color in that chapter like coloring the shaved ice syrup that they eat and then also the bouncing balls that they win at this one game and also there are really fun visual gags uh, in that chapter with like there's a fireworks show and like towards the end of the chapter you know Suzuki gets very excited and screams and like her <laughs> word balloon is like kind of punctuated by the firework it like takes the place of the firework and also like at the end of the chapter like she's like bouncing her bouncing ball like outside of the panel it's like <laughs> bouncing all around the page and hitting panel borders until it comes back into her hand so there's really fun visual gags like that that I love seeing the series experiment with too but yeah no I, I'm having a lot of fun reading this one this is a super super good rom-com which is really charming characters just really great dialogue and banter between them too like just really really good conversations and dialogue so I am really really enjoying this one a lot this may be in terms of just pure like enjoyment and how much I'm just smitten by the characters this may be my favorite of this batch of new manga plus editions I think that's totally fair, because, like, I mean, admittedly, I think this is the only Manga Plus series I didn't have the time to fully catch up on. I, I read about the first five chapters, but admittedly, and maybe I'm totally wrong, you can let me know, but I feel like I got a sense for the story and the characters and just the overall comic by then. Like, I felt like I understood it by that point, and I had meant to, like, go back and read more, I just didn't really have the time. But what I did read, I actually really did enjoy. I love the art for this. I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but I feel like there are hints of Higashimura in this. I think that they have similar humorous styles of deforming their characters. I wouldn't say it's like one to one. Me neither. No, but, but I yeah. can I can see like a comparison artistically in that way. Yeah, I, I just think like the playfulness of the art and how some of the characters are drawn sometimes, and especially some of the facial expressions. I, I agree, it's not one to one. Even I'm 
not sure whether that's like a stretch or not, but I don't know. There's something about this just kind of said Higashimura to me, and I don't know. I just got like a somewhat similar vibe while reading this, but still, I really can't praise the art enough. I really just love how all the characters are drawn, especially Suzuki, just the way she like flails about and runs around. And I forget which chapter it is, but there's a part where like she turns into like a glowing bear and she just like comes home from school. <laughs> that made me. No, that was there's such fun things that I guess I does for the designs there. Yeah, that's like the second chapter when they're going on the date and she's like dressing up in like this pan up or third chapter rather. But yeah, that was a fun like gag to show that just she's like beaming in the afterglow of that the date and it's really like embodying her outfit there i also love how her on her shirt during that chapter is like it's a <laughs> clearly a picture of a stuffed panda <laughs> on her shirt it's not like a drawing and I, that's just a funny choice to me <laughs> that is pretty good um i really need to know who capacho is yeah it's still not been revealed yet but it's a fun like recurring thing that you know yamada keeps referencing oh his friend capacho it tells him about all this stuff and it's, everyone's like who's capacho he's like blaming capacho whenever <laughs> he's this misinformation causes him to put his foot in the mouth like in this first chapter it's like you'll blame it on the capacho for <laughs> your own bloodness it's very similar to in skit dance where himiko sometimes they'll be talking in the club room and then she'll constantly talk about her friend nakatani and boston would be like who's nakatani i've literally never met this person <laughs> and then she like barely ever shows up in the entire series i i think you see the bottom half of her and that's it like she remains this like enigmatic figure this friend that like himiko has but like you never actually really see her i kind of wonder if Capacho's gonna fill the same role mm -hmm. i think that'd be pretty good uh overall i mean this is this is just good like I feel like rom-coms for me are like such a hard sell. Like I, I really, really have to be like invested in the characters and their romance for me to like get into that kind of stuff. But I feel like this is one of the few where like I actively actually kind of want to read more of this. If I had the time, I would love to keep up with this actually. Uh, yeah, I think it's just really charming, really sweet characters and funny characters. And yeah, it's just been a joy to read. Mm-hmm. Like that chapter with um I think it I think it was chapter five. Whatever chapter it was with, with the sort of incelish guy that I already forget the name of. Yeah, that was chapter four, but yeah, Tyra. Yeah, I thought that chapter was interesting in how like it, it explored this idea about like what people like superficially kind of want out of like a significant other compared to like what they're actually attracted to. I don't know. I, I feel like there was some kind of exploration of that that I thought was like really interesting in that in that chapter. I mean specifically the guy entire like project that oh that's what all these people are interested in just like superficial like their social standing and then he's like oh but no that's just like because of my own insecurity about where i'm at in this social standing and because i don't really have an identity outside of my relationship to how i judge myself to others yeah so i like that character like kind of immediately by the course of that chapter figuring that out and he's still kind of a little bit of a standoffish type but he also does have his moments where he's like trying to genuinely kind of understand how people think of love and relationships better and also you know he does like kind of comfort Tony or like kind of uh, assure him that hey you know Suzuki does think of you as cool because that's what she told me in conversation when you weren't around and like the compliments you get when you are not around are often the most sincere and often the best that should make you the happiest so mm -hmm. I like kind of his character operating that space there too 
is like, you know, he still has a lot to get over himself in terms of like how judgy he is of others but also like he is trying to his own way be a little more helpful and and considerate of others too yeah i also forgot to mention uh when i first started reading this i can really really relate to that feeling of talking to my best friend in particular and just constantly talking about stuff and just kind of talking to her about like stuff i'm into or stuff that's on my mind and just at some point being like am i talking too much does she actually care what I'm talking about like I I I can, I can I can relate to those feelings so hard when I'm talking to people just in general like do, do they actually care about what I'm talking am I talking too much should I stop <laughs> I, I I thought that was pretty relatable yeah that whole chapter about trying to figure out how to hold a conversation and engage someone with what they're interested in and that yeah it's just really nice relatable situation conversations that are very sweet because it's again it's not just one-sided like Tani is very much thinking the same thing like it's such a cute reveal that when they're like looking up like uh the burger spot like she they see on his search history that he was also looking up like you know how to talk to your girlfriend how to continue a conversation so very much they were like in a similar boat of like trying to think about the best ways to communicate with each other and i just again i like how both sided the expression of the romance and the series is and how they're both like trying to work through kind of very similar anxieties and insecurities about like how to be a good partner and I just find that really sweet. Yeah, because Tani at one point in the first chapter before Suzuki makes her big confession is just kind of thinking to himself like, he's too used to Suzuki like talking to him all the time where like that's just part of his routine and like it would feel weird if like she wasn't there to talk to him during the day, you know? Yeah, one thing is that he kind of started to fall for Suzuki because like she would always talk to him and that's how he kind of started to become attached to him. But he didn't like think she was actually interested in him until like they walked home together that one time. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of cute that like that he at least appreciated like her presence and that turned into like a fondness for her. I thought that was nice. Yeah, it's, again, like the small things that you notice about other people that you might not recognize about yourself, but other people really admire about you. That's a really sweet thing. And I like that we see that with both the characters and what they really admire and find cool and cute about each other. Mm -hmm. Overall, I definitely want to read more of this at some point. Yeah, very, very enjoyable. Like definitely kind of really skyrocketing to the top of like the most fun rom-coms to keep up with right now. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, and there are a lot of really interesting kind of more action series uh, that came out too. There's mainly the pair of two ones that are pretty interesting. The first one we'll talk about here is Make the Exorcist Fall in Love by Aruma Arima and are by Masaku Fukuyama. This is a story about basically this boy was raised by the priesthood to be like kind of the ultimate exorcist and priest, you know, because he has less spiritual power and potential to to like defeat Satan and whatnot. And he also has like the ability to detect demonic power and borrow the power of angels and form miracles. And so, yeah, like he basically has been raised by the church in kind of really harsh treatment. And, you know, in the first chapter, we're kind of seeing him kind of be mentored by a character we learn later. His name is Dante. And basically we see that his upbringing like kind of warped his understanding of like how faithfully he needs to follow the commandments 
so the Bible and the words of the Bible. And so he like is just literally not only living to get into heaven. He's like thinking that he can't be happy on a life on earth uh, because his life and upbringing was just so full of suffering. So his like whole goal and drive is like to kill the demons, do his job as quickly as possible so he can go to heaven. But basically in the process of like working under his mentor and then like having an encounter with one of the like demon lords of lust, like there are seven demon lords that are like model of their seven deadly sins. Satan is one of them, but also the first one they encounter is the demon lord of lust is Modius. Uh, and they beat them. But, like, in the process of that, like, he, like, tears out his own eye based on, like, this Bible verse of, like, thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. So it's, like, you know, he's very strictly following these commandments uh, from the Bible, or these words from the Bible, and that kind of freaks out his mentor. He's like, dude, no, like, that's not a healthy way to live. And he basically chastises him for, like, his fundamentalism and, like, trying to live like a martyr in a way that's not going to make him happy. I do love that there is a moment where his mentor tells him, like, hey, dude, like, it's okay if you need to, like, jerk off. It's fine. <laughs> like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's healthy. That is a fun exchange. But I, I like that character and his relationship. Like, he is very much a person who is, like, understanding that there are definitely boundaries to be had between, like, how strictly you follow, like, these teachings uh, from the Bible and then also just, like, how to just live enjoyably as a person mm -hmm. and to be a good person. You know, I think we see it very well in how he's, like, talking to the, you know, prostitutes he hires or, like, the whole thing is in their first mission is, like, they're, like, searching through this town for a succubus, a demon that eventually turns out to be, you know, a follower of Asmodeus and Asmodeus right there with them. But, you know, the way he was doing that he was like he was like basically purchasing the services of these women but he wasn't like actually doing it to sleep with them but to just kind of give them like donations but he also it's not like slut shaming the meter like he says hey you know if this is your job you should ask for more so it's not like saying oh you're like wrong for doing this but you know have some value in yourself charge what you're worth yeah so i appreciate that and then again like he's much more lax about like how strictly you follow these teachings but you know basically what he tells the kid and he has so far not had like a name in the series he's only really been referred to as the priest mm -hmm. Because I guess I don't think the church really gave him a name when they were raising him. Because even the abbot who like is like assigning Dante to mentor him at first is like just calling him it. Like they're not really treating him, respecting him as a person yeah. at the start. But basically, like he tells them, like you know, he, in the process of chastising, he finally gets the kid to like break down and kind of confess that you know he is just kind of suffering, living the way he is, and he doesn't think he can be happy just being alive and just wants to hurt heaven. So what Dante tells him is that you know you should fall in love with someone and if you love someone you'll stop wanting to feel like you want to die it'll change the way you'll see the world and then you'll grow to love the world that god made so that kind of gives him like hope and a goal to like carry on and then we check in on him four years later he kind of has like a glass eye replaced the eye he tore out and he's a you know full-fledged priest now and he's assigned to basically bodyguard this japanese artist imuri atsuki who draws like these paintings of demons and love, basically scenes of love and desire between demons and humans. And basically, like, it seems like Satan is after the girl because of her paintings. They don't really know why, but basically because Satan, like, directly possessed a high-level exorcist to make that demand, like, that 
is why he gets assigned to bodyguard her. And as it turns out, the girl is actually a demon herself. She is actually the original succubus Lilith, a femme fatale who is tasked by Satan to make the priest fall in love with her, to power him before, you know, Satan resurrects pretty soon. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thing there where like she is like trying to get close with him and like kind of make him like her and fall in love with her while trying to protect her from other demons who are like coming after him in particular because he has defeated like three of the demon lords like already by the point we check in on him when he meets a Murray and so like we see him encounter like one of them coming back for a rematch mom on the Lord of Greed and so we follow that and then now in the current like arc we see that them encountering like Leviathan who's very different from the other lords in that she's not out to like get the priest but she wants to befriend him because of how strong he is she thinks that he could actually be an equal to her and not be like afraid of her like other humans are when they find out that she's a demon. So that's an interesting aspect of the story. But yeah, I mean, the priest is like dealing still with a lot of this recovering trauma from like his, you know, abusive upbringing. And also he has like kind of a complicated relationship with sexuality because, you know, Asmodeus basically sicked a bunch of women to sexually assault him when he was just a kid. So he's very still uncomfortable around nudity and also around just, you know, the idea. And he still hasn't really completely figured out the idea of love but in that way Amuri is still also in the same boat because she really looks up to this idea of you know a love that will kind of like change her and everything that she is and like she admires the story of like Azazel like falling uh, as an angel to choose like a human he loved and so she's very motivated by that and, and she also seemingly is not like completely bound to what Satan demands of her because she tells him like you know if I don't like the guy you know I'll just run for the hills and stuff like that and like Satan's like fine with that so that's kind of an interesting aspect of that relationship but really as the story has gone on she seems to admire more of his like qualities and start to care about him so like in the recent chapters it's becoming clear that she is the one who's really kind of developing feelings for him perhaps more so than he is for her at this point and also that might be tied into some previous experiences that she may have had in the past where she may have fallen in love with another like human priest that you know a situation went awry when she discovered his her true identity so there's a lot of interesting things going on with that character in the relationship there but overall it's just a really kind of compelling like action series with this relationship between two characters who are like kind of trying to figure out these boundaries between love and fate and loyalty to like their respective parties but also there are a lot of really interesting takes on the seven lessons of like these demons and so there's some cool fights and action scenes and very interesting interpretations of like how these sins manifest like with Marmon in particular like his idea of greed is very much informed by toxic masculinity and also perpetuating systems of inequality and power like literally he gets his power from people who are fighting back against equality like hate groups racist groups yep. and all of that so that is a really interesting aspect of the story and especially his misogyny comes through because he literally rants about how women are like just property and their opinion shouldn't be valued they're just meant to procreate all this shit yeah <laughs> but then there's like this 
interesting aspect to him where like much like greed in fma like who he considers like his possessions he treats well so there's like his one woman subordinate he like actually seems to respect to a degree and like prevents her from committing like suicide after like he is like defeated and repelled so there's interesting aspects to these characters too in terms of complexity but also again these really interesting interpretations of these sins and how they manifest like in the current dark envy as manifested by leviathan is like an envy of like wanting to be you know close with people and you know being able to be friends with people which is also not dissimilar from like envy and fma but also it's they are in the arc it's also reflected in other characters of like how emory is jealous of these other nuns that are coming into also bodyguard her who will have a close relationship with the priest like leia in particular who is this nun who has like this history with the priest and she is getting really jealous when she's hearing her talk about him and so that's kind of an interesting thing the series explores in terms of like exploring these ideas of sin thematically as expressed through these characters Mm -hmm. yeah um man i don't know i think i hate to call it early but i think out of the four manga plus series that have come out and that we're talking about on this episode i think this is the one i really want to keep up with the most it is really good yes oh my god yeah like I think the fight between the priest and Mamon, and I will admit I'm very behind on jump, so this could change, but this is a contender for like one of my favorite manga fights of the year. (laughs) I would agree. It's like a very intense fight just emotionally, but also in terms of like kind of skill and like intensity of the action. But like, yeah, it's really, really fantastic. Like the action sequences and just kind of the craziness of it. Like even before the fight actually begins, like Mamon is like summoning this giant like fireball to like kind of crush the entire like city yeah. that like they're situated in and so we have like the, a lot of really cool action scenes like that in the series that really have such scale yeah. uh, intensity to them so it's really really cool and also like the creature designs in the series are excellent especially with this recent arc with a leviathan and all her sea creatures like that full page spread of like you know her surrounded by all her sea children her sea creatures are like is really striking with like octopus and squids and whales and all these different fishes so like uh, the creature designs in the series are really striking too yeah the the art overall is just so good and i mean like you said i I think one of my favorite things about this series are the two-page spreads and like how like epic and grand and scale these are like some of these attacks like ooh, they're deserving of double page spreads i really like the part during Mamon's fight in particular where the priest, you know, shuts him up by giving him a big sword slash and then on the next page, like literally the panel that he's in like slices in half. It's so good. I love details like that. Yeah, it's really, really cool action and really intense. So, and again, just great emotional core too, because like a big conflict in that fight is like, you know, Mamon has this idea of masculinity is defined and like power is defined through violence and like being a man is a big thing in that in his like idea of fighting is like to be a man is to take what you want through violence and he's like trying to go the priest into kind of losing himself to that violence and like would find such satisfaction in a fight that even ends with his death if he like can achieve that but like a big conflict then it's like the priest kind of struggling with like this commandment of like thou shalt not kill and also not losing himself to that because you know we he doesn't really want to participate in this violently you know he doesn't want to lose his sense of self in that way uh but he gets called out to by a murray just in the nick of time that kind of brings him back to earth before he like kind of really goes over and i think that is 
a very sweet ending is like just completely diffuses like Mamon's idea of like this ideal of a duel to the death between men and then I just love that you know he just throws them in the gates and then while he's like ranting about how his misogynist greed like Emory just like closes the doors on him and it's like saying you talk too much yeah so, that was cathartic <laughs> i just love that entire sequence and then again just this entire exploration of toxic masculinity and then a counterbalance of like you know healthy forms masculine empathy and it's like we have this moment where the priest is like asking emory afterward you know was i mainly in that fight and she's like says immediately not in the least and she's like thinking like trying to sum up your strength your kindness in that word is just frustrating and just tells him you know you are yourself and you don't need to worry about living up to whatever ideal just because of your gender whatnot or the status of the person you are so i like that message a lot it's explored through that fight and that arc so and again it's doing some really interesting things with envy and that concept in the current Leviathan arc too. So I really, really am liking the storytelling writing and also how the, the teams are weaved in through the, the fights themselves a lot so far too. Yeah, um, I will admit that when I first started this series, I don't know why I thought this, but for some reason, I thought this was going to be more like even if you slit my mouth, where it's like two characters kind of in a relationship trying to get one another to like like each other kind of but it's not really that at all. <laughs> this is a lot. This is a lot more like epic and action focused than I thought it would be. Um, But I'm really all about it. Like genuinely, when I when I started reading this, it was really hard for me to put down. Like I just wanted to keep going. Yeah, no, it really starts off running and just keeps the momentum from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I said, this is the one out of the four that I think I have the best chance of like going back to the soonest. But I mean, all of them, I think are good in like different ways. But yeah, in terms of like big epic action series that like, you know, deal with like real emotions and trauma and everything like I, th this, this scratches a lot of itches for me. Yeah, I mean, I said Polar Opposites is my favorite because I am just so smitten by just the, the charming characters and just the cute art and the playfulness of it. But, you know, Make the Exorcist is really, really close second to yep. me because, you know, the characters are really fascinating. The teams as it is explored uh, is really, really interesting. And again, the action art uh, is really intense and epic in scale. So it is a very compelling read. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we'll have to see once I finally catch up with all the other like Shonen Jump stuff I'm super, super behind on. Uh, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll see if this ends up making my list for best of manga next year. It's very possible. I can definitely see it. I mean, also in terms of fights, like there's some other good contenders. Yeah, but I definitely think even with those, the Momon fight is, is going to be a real standout. For sure. Um, But I think we should move on to our next action title. Yeah, so the other action title that debuted recently is Stage S by Tomuya Harakawa. You know, based on the title image, you would be <laughs> not remiss in thinking that it's about a guy who might have some sort of suicidal ideation. A, that's a, it's a very intense cover image of like a guy being hung by like this white snake-like creature. But it's not totally reflective of what the series is actually about. Basically, it's about this kid, Meguru. His parents died in a traffic accident 10 years ago, and he's kind of been a little bit alone ever since, but he's always had a close relationship with his childhood friend, Sarah, and recently he's finally able to confess his feelings to her and start dating her after meeting and helping out this snake god called Shirohebi. And basically, he helped 
feed it and pray to it. And basically, in return, like, it gave him advice to finally, you know, confess his feelings. So he forms a relationship of trust with Shirohebi. But one day, Shirohebi tells him that, you know, he's going to die soon. And because Shirohebi's, you know, future predictions are usually accurate, you know, he just kind of takes it in stride and decides to break up with Sarah so that she wouldn't get more heartbroken by that fact. And basically, as Shirohebi predicted, he dies in a traffic accident. But like, while he's at like the gates to get into the afterlife, he's talking with Shirohebi and he asks him about Sarah's future and then learns that, you know, in a hundred days, Sarah is also going to die and is going to be killed by another god called Kurohebi. And so Meguro begs Shirohebi to save her and that he'll do anything to save her. So in response to that, Shirohebi decides to resurrect him so long as he agrees to fight and kill Kurohebi for him. And basically, they fuse together. Basically, uh, Shirohebi starts to inhabit Meguro's body. And in the process, it kind of makes him kind of a superhuman with like regenerative capabilities and capabilities to like kind of warp his body uh and twist it in ways to take weapons from his body so that he can use to fight like these demonic creatures that are like the excrements of like Kurohebi which are called filth and Kurohebi is like this giant smoky black cloud uh that's like going across the sky so it's not really clear like how they'll be able to fight it just yet but basically in the process of like checking back with Sarah uh, in front of his like family grave to let her, her know that he's still alive and apologize for breaking up with her and to tell her to wait for him while he takes care of, you know, what he needs to do. He runs into agents of this exorcism company, the secret underground exorcism company that fronts is like a very popular home appliances company called Toradan. One of their agents, like Kujira, who is like kind of the granddaughter of the current president, you know, and she's like one of the strongest like Onmyoji at the agency. Like basically she captures him and there she was going to like experiment with him. Because, you know, he is, like, a person who is, like, possessed by a god, whatever. And, you know, they want to, like, again, just figure out what makes him take. But basically, he manages to kind of convince her and then, like, her supervisor, Koki, to, like, just have him join the agency instead. Because they're both kind of allied in the same goal of, like, wanting to take out Kurohebi. And so he basically trains uh, for a little while to kind of unlock more powers and being able to kind of utilize to a fuller extent Kurohebi's abilities, you know, learn different ways of manifesting weapon from his body and all that. So he basically goes through a little training arc and then now there are followers of Shirohebi who see it as their savior that are like trying to go after him and take Shirohebi from him and in their first encounter, you know, they were defeated by Kujira and made a retreat but now they're like trying to get to Meguru by going after Sarah and that's kind of where the story is right now. It's like these followers of Shirohebi which are like humanoid filth that, you know, are defined in power by how many lines they have in their face. Kind of like in Mashal with the visionaries, like you're stronger depending on how many lines you have in your face. Uh, and so that's kind of where we are in the story there. But yeah, I mean, this is kind of another type of like kid partnered with like a spirit and is an exorcist type series. But it has some cool action and some fun characters, a nice compelling relationship between the two leads and Maguro and Sarah here. Uh, and there's some interesting intrigue. So I'm definitely keen to follow along. And I did like kind of the training exercise where Muguro had to kind of confront, you know, his past of his relationship with his parents and, you know, kind of the events leading up to, you know, the car crash that took him away. 
and and also you know in that circumstance he forgets Sarah you know the person closest to him so he has to kind of try and remember you know what he is like fighting for and his purpose and also kind of reconcile like how he feels about his parents and like being able to kind of make peace with like leaving them behind and like his lingering guilt about the fact that you know his mom protected him when they were getting to the crash and stuff like that and also even before that you know when he went lost at a amusement park she like really got dirty and hurt trying to look for him apparently and it's like you know a kind of a charming character moment there where he's like kind of making peace with that part of his his past and also reconfirming like what he wants to protect in the the present and who he wants to protect so i like that and um i feel like we could get more of the dynamic between shirohebi and meguru because for a lot of the chapters so far like shirohebi has kind of been dormant while meguru has kind of been focusing on taking care of things on his own and going through the training so hopefully we get some more interesting interactions between them and kind of learn more about what it's all about and more of its backstory and relationship to Kurohebi because there's definitely some secrets there that it's like keeping from Meguro but yeah overall I think it's an interesting series so far if not like breaking the mold no yeah I definitely thought while reading this that there are definitely some similar elements in here that like I recognize from series like you know, Jujutsu Kaisen, Parasite, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think this still feels enough like its own thing. Like, I'm not sitting here reading and being like, oh, I could just be reading those, you know? Like, I, I really like this on its own. I really like the art, and I really, I, I really like the page turns in this series. I think the first one that, like, stood out to me was when uh, Meguru is, like, in front of his grave and he's, like, making his declaration about how he's going to protect Sarah. And then while he's in the middle of that... <laughs> page turn is, like, <laughs> Sarah's coming, a full page is, like, Sarah's seeing him in front of his grave fully naked. <sighs> that was a funny one. And then the next page turn of, like, just the slow reaction where he just is, like, <laughs> embarrassed and sweating. It's just a full page devoted to that expression is also very funny. It, it looks like something you would see in something like Mashal or One Punch Man. Yeah. It felt similar to something like that. Um, there's another good page turn that kind of ends off chapter six where uh, I think it's where Meguru and Koki are in the forest and they come across this guy that's like clearly a threat because we also see that he has like a trail of bodies in his wake, you know, deep in the forest. And this guy comes after Koki, uh, blasts his arm off basically. And then we have this great bit where uh, Meguru is obviously like panicked and kind of in the heat of the moment and he's thinking he's about to die and he's about to get ready to go on the offensive and then immediately on the next page of the end of the chapter is this guy like bowing down to Shirohebi which uh, I, I thought was a really good again it's another good page turn going from something clearly very very intense to something a little more comedic to kind of end the chapter on like a gag I just I just thought that was pretty good yeah that was a good reveal it's like it, it's real surprise expectations of like I mean because he just cut off Koki's arm and he has this intimidating like panel where he's like walking towards Meguru so it is like a big surprise to this Meguru is going in for attack that he's we see in the page turn that he's like bowing this Jiro heavy so Mitsu Ami's a pretty fun character so far. Yeah, I think that she's like the standout and like she starts out like really teasing Meguru then she becomes like fully infatuated and she has kind of this like really eccentric wildcard personality like when Meguru is like taking this test where he's like, you know, inside his own mind like working through his stuff. He has 24 hours to do it and I guess like Mitsunami was getting frustrated at how long he was taking. She was just gonna like 
you know, hit him <laughs> with like her big attack, which is strong enough to like like tear down several walls of the building as we see in the reveal. But it's like, you know, she just has that kind of crazy eccentric personality of like, oh, she gets really obsessed with Magru and then also is just very flippantly going to do whatever she feels like doing and she's not completely unafraid to like just go for whatever she wants. Like she's when a filth comes in and like just kind of breaks her room and like kind of messes up something that she really liked she was like goes and just like yells at it without fear because she's just pissed off like it rips one of her zingers and she just goes to yell at it and <laughs> i like just that uh kind of fearlessness and just casual carefreeness of her mm-hmm. i also really like that bit where um koki takes megaru out for his like initiation training type thing and they have to like find all these like tinier little filths and he just like smashes the filth with his hand he's like what is bare hand he's like okay let's gonna move on (laughs) just no sells it completely uh, that made me laugh pretty hard too like i there's a lot of genuinely like good comedy beats in this series so far yeah um and i and i I think that's what makes it stand out amongst all the like other shonen exorcist series so far yeah like uh it has some really really fun e-moments and nice eccentric characters like also like uh, Himakawa like the person who trains Miguru who's like got this really ripped physique but also has like excuse like because her like familiar is like just this slot it's slothy the sloth yeah slotty the slot and she's like saying uh you know my slotty is cuter than your Shiro <laughs> heavy who's like a literal god I mean she's not wrong yeah, no, it is very cute. <laughs> that that's pretty good. I want I want a plush of Slothy. I would I would love I I'd, I'd hang it off my arm all the time. No, that's gotta be <laughs> gotta be merch if the series gets big and to the point where they make merch of it. They gotta make a slothy. They plush. have to. Um. Also, one of the Kurohebi disciples just looks like Sensui. I'm not the only one that thinks that, right? Yeah, I really did feel like one of the Shirohebi disciples, one of the ones with like the big blood tear lines on his face, definitely looked like a Sensui. Like he has the same physique. His neck is just as tall and skinny. He has the same like slicked back hair like it just feels so similar it's just kind of weird yeah no i definitely kind of got that vibe from the character too but uh yeah i mean overall like i i think something else i really enjoy about the series is is the pace of it like i i feel like in what is it 11 yeah 14 chapters i feel like a lot of stuff has happened and i feel like we've gotten a lot done like we've gone to like so many different places and accomplished so many different things in just 14 chapters i think Hell, even like 10 chapters in, I felt like, oh, we're already like joining an organization. Like this is, I just feel like a lot's happened, but I never, I've never felt like it's never been exhausting to like keep up with. I feel like a series goes at like a good pace. Like something's always happening. Yeah, I agree. The story moves at a pretty fast clip. But yeah, overall, um, I don't know if I have as much to say about this one as um, Make the Exorcist Fall in Love, but I, I do think it's like a very solid exorcism series again with really good pacing really good comedy beats like i i think it's really solid so far this is probably the other one that i would like to try to keep up with if i can yeah now this is another really interesting one and definitely one that i'm keen to see where it'll go from here for sure uh i think we should definitely get to this next one and i will say just right off the bat i think out of the four new series on manga plus that we're covering i feel like this one is probably the most unique yeah I mean, this one is definitely about a subject matter that we don't see often explored 
at least not in a really big way. And a lot of manga that I have read tends to get popularized because this is manga about Ikebana, about flower ranging. This series is called Moebana by Hidari Yokoyama. Basically, it's about this kid who's like, you know, a big anime attacker, particularly about like this one series called Bokeh Garden, where a lot of the girls are like teamed after flowers in the series. And he is a really big fan of like the puny inspired character Piotan. But basically his love of this bokeh garden series has translated to him having appreciation of flowers himself and he especially really likes the kind of flower base that is like set up like at the school's back entrance. He like calls it like his holy land because to him it's like the flower arrangement. It really reminds him of Piotan and his favorite characters in the bokeh garden series. So he really really likes it. But the fact that he, like, is doting on it so much and, like, also can talk so much about, like, the differences between different peonies and stuff, it catches the attention of the leader of the Ikebana Club at their school, who is named Sukumo, and she basically wants to recruit him into the club. But he turns her down because, you know, he says, like, oh, he, she's more of, like, a anime fan. He's, like, not as knowledgeable of flowers. So he is taken by how seriously and how beautifully like she's arranging her flowers and she demonstrates to him but it also makes him think that he can't like really do that but he makes the excuse that like he, the reason he can't join is that he'll see anime in the evening but the reason really is that he goes to visit his little sister who's been bedridden for most of her life after school and like tries to cheer her up by you know trying to make her life with some goofy gags or whatever and it doesn't really seem to work or make her any more gloomy and when he goes to tell her about like the fact that he was invited to join the Ikebana Club she gets upset at him because she feels that he is like denying himself the ability to like interact and do things that he's interested in because he's just thinking about like you know visiting her and taking care of her and that's not making her happy at all like he she doesn't want him to do that and that kind of causes some stress on her that forces her to stay bedridden at the hospital you know previously looking like she could maybe get discharged but unfortunately it just puts some strain on her but in the aftermath of thinking about that and realizing that maybe his visits weren't like making her the best happy he ends up encountering uh the club president again and basically comes to get an idea of like making a flower arrangement for her sister to make her smile and he makes one based off of a character from bouquet garden a very and basically he is encouraged to use a uh, flower arrangement as a way to you know help communicate his feelings and help find a way to make her smile because there was an incident before where he had given her flowers and she smiled at that too so he succeeds in making an arrangement that makes her happy and she recognizes that it's inspired by the Barachan character from the K-Garden and she convinces him to join the Cabana Club because for her like seeing him have fun cheers her up and that makes her happy and so yeah you know he ends up joining the club, but he kind of runs afoul or rubs wrong one of the other members in the club, Subame, who is actually a prodigy who is like one of the heirs to like these six big Ikebana schools in Japan. 
And he's like in particular the inheritor of the Dewa no Kuni school style. But he's kind of been kind of ostracized from the Ikebana community because at the previous like Roka Cup, the Ikebana like competition the previous year, he broke his like partner's precious vase and kind of caused him to get disqualified from the competition. And the reason he did that is not just purely an accident, but also because of nerves and because like he just didn't like being under the pressure of like having to do flower arrangement in front of a bunch of people and so he kind of has sold this anxiety of like trying to compete again in particular in competing with Fukukasa who he thinks like you know is someone who is not really seriously interested in flowers and doesn't know flowers as well and is just interested through this lens of like his anime fandom but his sincerity does get through to Sabame and he realizes that he was wrong about him that in his flower arrangement like they have a competition with each other even though like his arrangement is isn't as good as Sabami's because he doesn't think about how to create it from all angles. Sabami does eventually recognize that. Oh, he was thinking about like what the flowers would feel happiest about, like, you know, in terms of positioning in the way that they would get the most sunlight and stuff. And so he makes peace with Fukukusa and they kind of become friends. And then eventually after Fukukusa kind of recognizes Tsubami's situation and what happened with the previous Roka Cup, he manages to convince him to be partners. So now in the most recent chapter, they're kind of competing against one of the other Rokasen, the other like big inheritors of the different Ikebana schools that also happen to be, of course, in the same grade and school year in these different schools across Japan. But they're basically having like this practice match with one of them, Misano, who is also like a popular like social media influencer called Misanyaro. But basically, yeah, she gets on Sabame's nerves and Sikamo kind of runs late to like their practice match with her. But she's really interested in the fact that Sabame has taken on another partner. So she wants to test his skills. And that's basically where we're at in the story. But yeah, like I think that the idea of kind of being able to reflect your hobbies and your passions in like this art form of flowering arrangement is really interesting. Like the fact that, you know, Sukumo is able to make like these anime inspired fire arrangements that are also really thoughtfully constructed in a way to like best show off the flowers by taking a kind of empathetic view of like what the flowers would like best, but also, yeah, you know, positioned in a way to communicate how he feels to people he cares about or about things he's really passionate about in a way that's appreciated by his sister and by other people. I think that's really interesting. And I'm interested in seeing like these different like styles of flower arrangement that these different schools have and their different approaches. Like Sukumo Sabami school is like focused on how to best like show off talking with the flowers. You know, they're trying to show off this idea of flowers as their friends in kind of a cheesy way, but in, in a way that makes sense. And that reflects Sabami's character of like how he is really thinking a lot about, you know, the best way to show off his flowers. So, so I'm kind of interested in seeing like what these other approaches from these other schools are and then like how that'll be reflected in these competitions. And I think the dynamic between Tsukumo and Sabami so far, you know, is really interesting kind of like two people of very different temperaments. Like Tsukumo is like a very like cheery, outgoing person. Sabami is a lot more calmer, a lot more like serious Standoffish. Yeah. So it's kind of fun to see their like kind of personalities bounce off each other. So they make a good op couple pair there. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept uh, and exploration of the art form so far. Yeah, 
this definitely caught me by surprise because I remember seeing this around when it first got added to Manga Plus, and uh, I genuinely had no idea, like, what this was going in. So I definitely wasn't expecting, like, an Ikebana manga. Like, Ikebana is definitely something that, like, I've seen, like, touched on a little bit in other series, but I have definitely have never read a series about Ikebana. So that alone definitely has me interested in checking out more of this, because Ikebana is definitely something I've never really, like, looked into, and I, I do not know the first thing about... I don't know anything about arranging flowers, but... I don't know. It just it's the kind of thing that like because I don't know too much about it, it makes me want to like learn more about it through reading this. I would put this in the same category as something like Chihayafuru almost, where it's like, that's also a series about kind of sort of like a niche-ish hobby, but also something that you could do competitively almost. And unfortunately, we're at a point in the series where we haven't really gotten to any of the competitions yet, but I would I would really like to see like what an Ikebana competition looks like in this series. Yeah, now that's what has me super curious to see what happens with this match they're having with the school that Mizono is from. And like, this is kind of, you know, it's very much like a Kuroko's basketball type situation of like, you know, they have these six prodigies yeah. <laughs> who are all from different schools and they have to compete against each other. And like, right off the bat, they kind of compete against one of the members from one of the other schools. Though Mizono seems to be much more competitive and standoffish than Kize in uh, Kuroko, who was like the first opponent for them. But like, yeah, no, I am very much interested in seeing how like they handle the competitions and like also exploring like, different forms of flower arranging and really taking an interesting look at his art form. And again, I think it's really clever to kind of connect what might be like a niche subject to a more popular subject. Like the fact that, you know, the main character, Sukumo, is his anime fan and like his arrangements kind of reflect like his love for his favorite series and stuff. So I think that's like kind of a nice way to kind of ease readers into like understanding the concept in terms of like how to think about how people might approach her or visualize their flower arrangements in terms of like, hey, latching onto like a type of fandom or a type of art and media that they are more familiar with. Yeah, I also like that idea in that I think that's very relatable for a lot of like anime and manga fans too. Like I'm sure we've all read or watched a series about a particular thing. And then, you know, that makes us want to like kind of look into more said particular thing. Like I, I think it's really relatable the idea of like, you know, getting into an anime or a manga and then kind of want to getting into that same thing, you know, from consuming that media, I guess. I, I think that's a very relatable thing. Yeah, no, expressing your fandoms through like other activities you do is like something that you definitely see a lot happen. Yeah, yeah. Like it can be in athletics, like in wrestling, you have a lot of anime inspired oh, folks, yeah. uh, or even even like just basketball now too, or football. Like you have so many fans who kind of show off suddenly like their fandoms and the music industry. You know, we, we have people like Megan the Stallion who kind of wear their anime influences on their sleeve. Yep, yep. So like expressing like your fandom uh, through other art forms, other activities you're doing is something that's, I think, really interesting uh, to explore. No, I, I definitely agree. Um, and I think you brought it up, but I really think this series is going to like live or die, especially by its dynamic between uh, Fukukasa and uh, Subame in particular. I think their dynamic is like a for sure uh, really interesting one, something that I think is going to be like endlessly entertaining to read. Obviously, with this more upbeat, sunny personality type of guy uh, juxtaposed with this very gloomy looking guy who, again, is very standoffish, doesn't really want to make friends that much. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, the real opposites, uh, the sun and the moon, day and night, on a running team in uh, some of the series we've been talking about. A real Spongebob and Squidward relationship, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, that's really apt. (laughs) Though, unlike Squidward, uh, I think (laughs) he has more artistic talents than (laughs) Sabame. Yeah, he he actually Sorry, no, he Squidward. actually has the skills to back it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, but I I I think that is going to be the thing carrying the series, especially if you know you're getting into the series and maybe you're not like as interested in Ikebana. You you still have that dynamic to kind of carry you through. I I think it's entertaining enough to get you through really any premise. Honestly, I agree. Um, and yeah, I I wish I had like more to say about it, but again, we we are kind of at a point right now at the time of this recording where unfortunately the series is like just before the point where it gets to like the really interesting stuff. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think I would like to try to keep up with this. I definitely want to read more of this. I really want to see where it goes. The art is also great too. Absolutely, especially in depicting the flower arrangements, they do look really beautiful. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing where this goes, and I, I hope it does well. I think all these new Manga Plus series have been really interesting. Yeah, this is this is like the strongest batch of Manga Plus series I think we've had in a while. Yeah, I mean. These Manga Plus series are putting most of the new Jump series output this year to shame. Yep. I mean, Akane Bayanashi is, like, excellent, the standout. Oh, but, God, like, yeah. The other series that have debuted this year in Weekly Shonen Jump, uh, not as nearly as compelling as, like, these Jump Plus titles. No, yeah. In terms of premise and execution. Especially considering the last, like, batch of jump starts we had with um, Aliens Area and um, I, for- I forget the other one already that we had it'll come to me um i remember thinking the last batch of jump starts i think was okay but man yeah i i I do agree with you aside from like a few exceptions like akari banashi oh rory dragon was great rory dragon was good i do like a lot i thought there was like a third one oh super smartphone that's what i was thinking of super smartphone yeah comparatively you know, I, I've been warming up to both those series, but like I feel like in terms of starting off with like a really interesting premise from the get-go, all of the Jump Plus series we talked about today really started like on a really strong yeah. foot comparatively. Yeah, for sure. And if I were to compare, you know, just their runs to what the runs of Aliens Arena and Superstar from are, like they are just much stronger. So No, I agree, for sure. Jump Plus really knocking it out of the park so far, like usual, I think. Um, but we have we have one more series we got to talk about. One more series that is not in the Jump family, but a Square Enix title on the, as we discussed, much maligned Manga yep. Up app. However, if this app was worth it for anything, it was worth it for the chance to be able to check out Demons of the Shadow Realm officially, her own Archives Next series, a couple months ahead of when the print release will come out next year. And very much this does look to be the same localization that will be published in print next year year because the sound effects uh, are all done up and the translation seems really solid and yeah so i was appreciated for the basically have the chance to read the first volume of it a couple months early from the print release and hopefully or we'll see uh how frequently future chapters will get updated into the app in the future as well probably as uh, frequently as 
they are finished by the Square Enix localization. Yeah, I, I think at the time of this recording, we both read the first six chapters. Yeah, I mean, I only read the three chapters. So I read the first five and a half because I'm going to just wait out for these advanced chapters to go free. Okay, because I think I think I had enough points to read all six chapters somehow. Yeah, I mean, no, that you I could unlock these last chapter and a half using the XP points, but I was like, I'll just wait for them to become free chapters that or not free, but rather chapters that can be unlocked through the daily points instead. Mm-hmm. I basically just wanted to use whatever points I had because I know I'm not gonna buy any more points on this app. So yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this series sees Arakawa kind of return more to like action fantasy compared to Silver Spoon. And basically it's about like another pair of twins uh, or another pair of characters called Asa and Yoru Day and Night. And literally these twins were born under the kind of prophetic desire that they will be the twins who will sunder Day and Night. You know, they'll be like big saviors who will command like demons in the world and stuff basically when we check in on the character yoru like when they're kind of grown up and as a teen like you know he's kind of well liked by his village and his sister he thinks is like you know kind of just locked up in this cell because apparently you know that's just her divine duty but you know he comes to visit her and just talk to her about like working on his hunting skills and like trying to become a good hunter so he never has to leave village and can just take care of her because like apparently their mother and father had like left them left the village when they were young and there are some people who like leave this like remote village like dara who is like kind of a traveler who kind of goes out and collects supplies and comes back and trades them inside the village and it seems like you know they have a very peaceful life there but then all of a sudden when they like a squat team a bunch of like guys and guns and helicopters <laughs> like break into the village and start shooting people up and slitting people's throats on their way to like kind of get to as we find out yoru and then also one of them like a ipad wearing woman in black has an axe to grind with the village elder and then the asa in the cell and as yoro kind of confronts her as she like kind of like attacks the asa in the cell she reveals herself to be the actual asa who had also kind of left the village with yoru's and asa's parents and also is like now come back kind of revenge and to take yoru with her but of course like he doesn't trust her and so they get to a fight and they also kind of get into like a conflict with like all her like military troops as well as like another demons user in this world like there are people who can control like these demons who like come in pairs and so one girl that is like kind of teamed up with asa is like this girl gabby who has like these upper mount and lower mount demons that she uses like chomp people and stuff like that so they kind of get into a fight with her and also in the process dara kind of gets to yoru and basically helps him like unlock the village's guardian demons left and right who become like his personal demons and yeah they basically manage to kind of drive off Asa and Gabby and then they also manage to just leave the village because they know that if they stay there then they'll keep playing the village later and they'll come back to him and they're basically like Yoru's goal is to kind of find out like the truth of like what is really going on with Asa where his parents are 
And that's basically where the story is. And we also are learning a little more about Asa's group. And they seem to not become a completely villainous organization because they do use their demons to do odd jobs to help out random people. So it's also like kind of curious to see like what their ultimate goals are too. But that's kind of like the premise in a nutshell. And right now, like in the story, like they're kind of confronting like another one of the kind of demons users that like are allied with Asa. So so, yeah, and like their search for Rasa. So, yeah, it's kind of where the premise is. And yeah, it's very much like has Arkawa's signature style of like humor as well as just like strong action. And there's interesting dynamic between Yoru's relationship with left and right, as well as, you know, again, an interesting intrigue with like the supposed villain group in the series that Asa belongs to, who seem to have kind of amiable relationships with each other and not completely villainous attentions outside of the fact they just murdered a bunch of people in this village so and there's also this entire mystery of like why like the twins were raised with it and why like their parents fled with Asa when like tricking Yoru all this time with like the imposter Asa and the cell so that he wouldn't leave so th- there's all these interesting lingering questions yeah where are their parents now even like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what he's trying to confront Asa to figure out, so. Yeah, this is definitely a return to form to the sort of, like, Full Metal Alchemist-esque kind of, like, action storytelling kind of series with a lot of intrigue and everything. I mean, it, it's Arakawa, like, it's it's good. I don't really know what else to say. It's just, you know, like, originally, I think I said it on one of our last episodes, I originally was only planning on reading, like, the first chapter because I really wanted to avoid actually paying for points to, like, you know, support the manga up app because it's a terrible app but i will say i got a chance to read like all six first chapters and uh i think um it's really good i like it so far i think the only thing that i can lobby against it um and again this might just be a nitpick because it's really not that big a deal but like i feel like there was a point where i was like man there's a lot of exposition and man we have to set up a lot of stuff for like the story later on and what we're gonna i just felt like there was a lot of story to set up over the first couple chapters but i feel like once we started kind of getting into the action and you know we started getting into the real meat and potatoes of like what the rest of the story is probably going to be about it got a little easier for me to follow and it wasn't like as dense but overall like this this is still really good and i i can't wait to like hopefully read more of this eventually yeah i mean it's like a really shocking moment in that first chapter when the paramilitary people like come in and like literally start splitting the throats of these peaceful villagers and then gabby like is starting to use her demons to like chomp the heads <laughs> off of just all these people yep that was shocking like because it's really easy for us to assume as readers like oh this is probably like a period piece like this is taking place in like olden times or whatever that's what i thought at first no but then it's like no this is this is the modern day with modern weaponry and everything but it's like this village was just secluded and kind of living in a time of the past like you know because of their barrier that kind of keeps them separated and hit it from the outside world so you know it's interesting world building on top of that but yeah like the twists that they keep piling on and also kind of the, the brutality of the action is really really interesting and engaging oh for sure um i really like some of the action in this so far i mean again it's arakawa so that's that's to be expected but yeah there's a lot of really good bits in here i really like when uh left and right have to fight you know these guys other demons i really liked um rights fight with with the little bunny rabbit demon yeah i like the rabbit and turtle fight that see one of the other interesting aspects of the series is that all the demons like are 
wielded in pairs. So they're like pairs of demons that like uh, fight alongside each other. So left and right is a pair. And then this turtle and rabbit is a pair. Like kind of have complementing powers in a way. Yeah. So I really think that's an interesting motif for the series. It's also reflected in the chapter titles, which are like character pairs. And the fact that the series is protagonists or twins and whatnot. So I'm interested to see where Arakawa goes with that. But yeah, the, the rabbit and turtle fight was very... Uh, funny Mm -hmm. the rabbit fight is funny in particular because like when the fight's done and like they're walking off and going back to asa's base and you have the rabbit kind of looking like really cockily at at right (laughs) like i beat your ass (laughs) (laughs) made me laugh so hard Oh, um, and then the moment where they like turn off the lights and then they remember like, oh yeah, Yoru's like a hunter. And then you see that shot of him like about to slice Jin's leg in the dark. Like that scared the shit out of me, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I I mean, already so far, like I feel like we already have a really great cast of characters that like I really want to see more of. And again, a really great, like dense, like intriguing story that I really want to see how it plays out. Like again, it's it's very similar to Full Metal Alchemist in that way. It's like a it's a real return to form of that kind of like storytelling, you know? Like I, I just really want to see like how the mystery unfolds and like what happened to Yoru's parents and where they might be at right now. And I, I really want to see this mystery unfold. And this interesting dynamic of both being pursuers and the pursued as these like groups are like going after each other and trying to get information or get a person from the other side so i find that aspect intriguing too mm-hmm. i also think uh jin really looks like hachiken of hachiken grew up to be his dad yeah he does look like a very tired older <laughs> hachiken i couldn't get that out of my head um i'm also a sucker for like fish out of water stuff too so like when, when yoru and yeah, left and there right. Are a lot of jokes about <laughs> your left and right not understanding modern technology, like with the car, and they have to be convinced by Hana that, hey, there are horses in here. <laughs> and so get in. They'll give you a ride. And that leads to a really funny title page where they, like, tried to feed the car hay. Yeah. Oz, <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably one of the funniest title pages i've seen from a manga so far that was really great um but yeah i I just i just really love them trying to learn about like modern society and technology and yoru being proud of himself for like washing his hands in the bathroom and turning off the water and turning off the lights (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is pretty great but yeah overall like pretty solid stuff again other than feeling kind of bogged down by the exposition in parts like i don't really have a whole lot of complaints yeah i mean i think it actually moves at quite at a good pace uh, so far and definitely leads me keen to like uh see where it's going because i feel like things have even escalated even quicker than i thought with the confrontation with Jin. so yeah um and i guess we should probably say like you know we talked about last episode about our thoughts on the manga up app i i think we probably still feel the same way mm-hmm. it's not not a very good app but i mean if you're gonna read anything on manga app just read this yeah i mean you can read it completely for free without having to purchase the chapters so if you want to read the first volume basically of demons for you know again free like a couple of months ahead of when the print release is out like this is a perfectly good way to do it a perfectly legitimate way to do it yeah basically try to read as much as you can without paying for the app yeah yeah I mean, that's the principle you should just follow if you want to read anything on this app in particular. Like, you'll get your free points every 12 hours you can use to unlock one or two chapters. So just play the patient game and just avoid giving them any money for their, like, extremely poor business model. Mm Mm-hmm. And I I guess... Worst comes to worst, like, this will be out in print soon, and I'm sure digital volumes will probably be available for this as well, so 
you know, it's it's available and it's out there. And if you want to keep up with Arakawa's new series, I mean, you should. Especially if, you, if you're a bigger fan of Full Metal Alchemist than you are Silver Spoon, then definitely go read this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we pretty much covered everything we wanted to talk about. Yeah, this was a very fun discussion of a lot of really cool new series that have come out and some cool one shots that come out recently. Yeah, no, no series that I dislike at all. I think I loved pretty much everything. Yeah, I, all of these were really enjoyable and fun to discuss in their own ways. Maybe some had more to talk about them, uh, than others when it came to one-shots in particular, but like the series especially were all really, really interesting. Oh, for sure. But I think it's time to go into community shoutouts before we end. Yeah, I do indeed have a few community shoutouts I want to share. So, I mean, on the subject of Jump series, Multiverse and Manga Club recently did their episode catching up on, you know, the recent new Shonen Jump series, Aliens, Area, and Ruri Dragon, as well as talking about the final chapter of Shokuki no Sanji. So I always enjoy hearing their thoughts on new series and what they find interesting about them. I thought they had good conversations on all of those things. So definitely check that out. And, you know, we talked a lot about themes that were explored in Make the Priest Fall in Love, particularly in the Maman arc, and how that character is like power derives from the enforcement of hierarchies. Well, Renegade Cut has been doing a great series exploring that very concept, how these various different social hierarchies have been created and perpetuated, and the ways in which these systems of inequality are being sustained. So I think that is just a really fantastic series of video essays I encourage folks to check out. He's currently explored how the patriarchy has been enforced and also applied that to the recent situation in terms of anti-abortion rulings. So I think it is a very fascinating work of kind of social research and exploration of like kind of how, again, these systems of inequality are kind of sustained in the pursuit of solidifying power for a very select group. And which I think, yeah, thematically is very tied into ideas he talked about in that arc we mentioned. Now, speaking of arcs, a video I really enjoyed from Tony Agamon recently was him ranking every Dragon Ball arc. Now, he previously had participated in Team Four Stars' uh, final December ranking all the arcs, but his own personal uh, rankings fall very differently, so it's interesting to hear his thoughts, as well as not just on the original series, but also going into GT and Super. So, I enjoyed just, like, getting his quick thoughts on those arcs and seeing where things fell for him, and I definitely would agree with him on, like, kind of the the strongest stretch of the series that he identifies. So I also think that's like a very, really solid portion of Dragon Ball. Can I also mention real quick his um, The Day Dragon Ball Died video? Because I also thought that was actually a really informative video. That's not as clickbaity as like the title or the thumbnail makes it look like. Because um, he brings up a thing about the franchise that I've never actually really thought about until recently, but like makes a lot of sense and where like, you know, obviously a lot of the newer stuff, you know, Toriyama's still involved, but he is still mostly kind of hands off at the very least when it comes to like the action specifically. And he highlights the differences between like the action in the original manga series as opposed to the action uh you know with the rest of the franchise and how the action may be lacking for a lot of people because Toriyama isn't the one really writing the action which I thought was really really interesting and I never really thought about the newer stuff like that before but I like now that I see it I can't unsee it and like I I don't know I just I just thought it was a really interesting point to make about like I guess the current iterations of the franchise overall it was a very good point 
that, yeah, I mean, Toriyama, as he's writing these story outlines, is basically kind of just leaving the action all to whoever is going to kind of flesh that out. Like, how he writes the story is that it's very front-loaded of like, oh, here's like all the plot and the setup, and then they fight, and then I'll leave you to figure out the fight. And so the fight is not integrated into the story Mm -hmm. as it was during the original run. It's the fight is not really telling or progressing the story in the same way. Or like, it really left up to the team at Toei or Toyotaro to kind of figure out how to use the fights to do that. And that's where things are like kind of falling apart and not being as successful. So yeah, I think that was a very well observed point as well. Now, I really enjoyed this video from Mercury Falchion John on this Lost Atari Ishinomori anime, Don Kokyo. And basically, it's like a series that uh, is from like the late 70s. And it's just not really been preserved in any way outside of like the opening theme that recently resurfaced like someone found a tape of it but has not shared the full episode just the opening team and then like he found like the ending team on like a record that he <laughs> revealed at the end of the video which I thought was fun but yeah like I thought his research and his exploration of like what the show was and kind of the different places it aired over years and different methods of where they could potentially I identify how to find it was very interesting and it definitely left me curious to kind of learn more about it and also just kind of like more about like what this show was and what it might have been made in reaction and response to was very interesting so i always appreciate his passion and knowledge for shitari and shinomori works and especially for this kind of lost obscure title in his pantheon is one that i'm definitely was really interested to learn about and now definitely curious to see if they will eventually kind of be able to dig up an episode or dig up like more information on the show. And lastly, I kind of have just several Pokemon related shout outs that I want to mention. If no other thematic reason, then uh, in one chapter, a polar opposite, uh, <laughs> like it was real to Tani has still like a lot of Pokemon or in that series uh, as parody form Pokemon related merchandise and stuff. But uh, no, there just happened to be a lot of Pokemon related stuff that came out recently that I found interesting. So Anime Feminist published a really great article called Ribbons for the the win by Julianne Esther that kind of looks at how they were really inspired and able to kind of reconcile their you know relationship to femininity and feeling feminine to Dawn's character and how she would present herself in the Diamond and Pearl series because Dawn was a very girly character but also still a very competitive and sporty character and the Pokemon contest showed that being girly was not necessarily something to be insecure about but can be a source of strength and that was something that you know she found a lot to relate in and she found a lot more to relate with Dawn's character arc and how she grew and developed and also she appreciated just different examples of how feminine interests you know were challenged uh, in the series in terms of like how Pokemon generally challenges traditional gender roles that contests aren't just like a hobby that only girls participated in but you had like men participated in too even like Ash and also the women who participated in contests you know were not all feminine but you had characters like Zoe who was much more of a masculine presenting character uh, you have a character like Nando who participated in both battles and contests and of course how Ash and Dawn in the series both inspired and took from each other like in terms of like techniques that they applied into their own contests or their battles was also 
also a, a really inspiring and huge part of the series. So as someone who really loved Dawn's character arc and also the Pokemon contest and a lot of what the author Juliana is kind of describing in her piece, I just really, really appreciated it and thought it was a really nice reflection on like what the series and what Dawn's character meant to her and inspired her and just what Pokemon does so well in like kind of examining and challenging traditional ideas and gender stereotypes. And uh, recently, Weekly Manga Recap did a review of Pokemon Black and White, uh, the Pokemon Adventures arc of Black and White, and I thought that was a really good conversation. This is like the first arc they didn't have any familiarity with beforehand, but of course, Quinn was a huge fan of the games for Black and White, so it's interesting to kind of get their thoughts on the story from that perspective and to identify what they liked about it as an adaptation, especially in comparisons to games that already were known for having a very strong story found foundation and how the manga built up upon it and yeah I'm, black and white is one of my favorite parts of the adventures manga so i was interested and really glad that they seem to enjoy it a lot Digital Gaming did some really great videos recently kind of exploring kind of uh and translating some more obscure pokemon guides and media like they recently take a look at like a kind of lost Pokedex book that was published early on when Pokemon was first coming out and they got like Nabokasawara, the original translator of the Pokemon games to translate the Pokedex entries in it, which had a lot of interesting like new info on Pokemon and like how they were thought of and conceived in the development of the series and revealed some like interesting kind of lore facts about them that were not seen in other pieces of media or wouldn't be seen or described in other media for a long time afterwards so that was a really interesting kind of look at that piece of lost history there and similarly uh, they translated a another kind of booklet that had a lot of discussion on a lot of the gen 3 games so they went into a lot about kind of their development of ruby and sapphire and as well as pokemon coliseum and i really appreciated kind of that look as well as you know some obscure facts about those uh, games especially since genistry is kind of like my childhood favorite games and then i really just enjoyed this fun little gagged up video made by uh, this youtube channel jet where they just kind of like made a fun little parody dub clip of like team rocket like holding a podcast and me out like going on a crazy rant about him how team uh, magma had a point actually there is too much water in hoeing <laughs> and that he would like personally go down and you know it cuts off there but he, he really goes off the deep end there and i just thought it was a very fun like parody gagged up click uh that played off of uh you know in pokemon journeys team rocket does have their own podcast so i thought that was very funny like kind of take on like oh what a team rocket went off the rails as podcasters and meowth got political a very uncomfortable way <laughs> so I, I really really enjoy that and i guess as a final shout out uh speaking of i guess political matters uh, i think that history of japan podcast by isaac myers did it like an epilogue episode on shinzo abe and just the circumstances leading up to and around his assassination so kind of as like a coda to my previous shout out of like his history of shinzo abe's political career i thought that was a good episode to kind of get a sum up of like what abe had done post retiring as prime minister of japan and then like 
his involvement in like the cult that kind of enraged the person who ended up assassinating him and then like kind of the political fallout for that and where that might lead so i thought that was just a good follow-up shout out uh, if you had not checked out that particular episode yet but that will basically be it for my community shoutouts for this episode. And yeah, definitely check out all that stuff out. And definitely check out all the series we talked about on this episode today, because I think that we could hardly recommend all of them. And yeah, we'll definitely be talking about more manga we can recommend and enjoy and love discussing in the future. But for now, I think we'll head up into the wrap up of the show and where you can find us to hear us talk about all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, we really enjoyed recording this one we really hope you enjoyed listening to it but until the next time we can get together and talk about even more manga stuff we're gonna let you guys know where you can find us starting with my good friend lum where can the good people find you you can find me at Lumrumiyasha on Twitter. It's Lumrumiyasha on a variety of places like Amish Revelation and Analyst. Rotors of Lumrumiyasha, that's you can find me. You can also read my reviews on MangaRose.com. We got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews planning to go out, as well as our kind of con reports and interviews. So look forward to more out there. And that's where you can also find the other podcasts I do, Lum Squad, the Years of Focus podcast I do with my good friend Andre C. Shimura. We discuss a wonderful Wacky World of Gurakashi's classic, Rom Kong Safi Manga, Years Yatra. We're having a lot of fun covering the manga released by Viz as well as the movies available from Discotheque and on Crunchyroll. And we are so excited for the new anime coming out really soon this fall, as well as the re-release of the classic anime series by Discotheque next year. There is just so much to talk about regarding Yurusayatsura these days, and we're so excited to talk about all of it. have so many plans for the show, so if you want to hear talk about just this amazing classic series and the works in Rukunaji, definitely check us out at Lum Squad on Twitter. You can find our YouTube channel by searching for Lump Squad. We're also on every podcast platform of choice, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And we also cross-post episodes in the Mongrel's feed and post episodes early on the Mongrel's Patreon. And if you like the art I do, the thumbnails I make for our podcast, or the illustration animations I make in general, you can find that on my Instagram, at SetArtWorks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other stuff that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Over there, you can click on the podcast page and uh, basically take a look at everything I'm doing at the moment, uh, even stuff I'm not a part of anymore, but I still want to link anyway, or even a lot of guest spots I've done on so many other podcasts over the past few years I've been podcasting. But literally, if you want to listen to anything else I've been a part of, again, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh, but as for Manga Mavericks, you can find every episode of this podcast over at MangaMavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at Patreon.com slash Manga Mavericks. Uh, we're at the $2 tier. You will have access to select episodes of the podcast whenever we upload them on our Patreon. Basically, if we happen to have an episode of the Manga Mavericks podcast edited before we're supposed to put it up on our main feed, we will put it up on our Patreon at the $2 tier first for people to listen to exclusively on there before anyone else. But also, admittedly, that really depends on what we have done at any given time. So really, if you want more reliable content, you should sign up for our $5 tier where we post a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. Uh, right now, I believe our latest bonus podcast is the third episode of our read through of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 2 Battle Tendency. That's right. We are currently 
doing another Manga Mavericks book club read-through of JoJo, and it's been a lot of fun. I've been reading through part two with my good friend Grant, at Grant the Thief on Twitter, and uh, we'll hopefully be doing some more JoJo stuff in the future as soon as we're done with part two. Uh, fingers crossed that we can get that set up. But yeah, basically, if you want to listen to that, and basically every other bonus podcast we've uploaded over the past few years we've been on Patreon, that's all at the $5 tier on patreon.com slash And really, you know, when you sign up for our Patreon at any tier, you know, it, it really helps support the show and everything we do here because basically anything we make on our patreon goes back to keeping the website up and keeping the podcast up and yeah you know no, no matter what tier you guys sign up for we really appreciate your patronage and your support any little bit helps and we appreciate all of it uh once again that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks please sign up um but as for everything else you could follow us on twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on tumblr at manga mavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast subscribe to our youtube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks uh where we post different excerpts of the podcast including some exclusive content every once in a while again that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks please subscribe to us Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, do you have any thoughts on any of the new series we covered on this episode? Are you reading any manga that you want us to talk about on the show in general? Uh, you know what? Email us anything about manga or the podcast. We love getting emails from you guys. And when you do email us, we'll read it on the show. Uh, again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms at this point, but especially on Apple Podcasts and even, you know, Spotify and other places that have this kind of thing uh you know if you leave us a rating and a review you know it really helps the visibility of our show on all those platforms and in general we love getting ratings and reviews from you guys we love getting feedback from you guys in general whether it be positive or negative because any feedback we get we want to use it to make the show as good as possible and yeah we just appreciate anything you leave us uh but that's gonna about do it for this episode once again thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of manga mavericks this has been episode 211 and we'll see you guys next time for episode 212 bye guys sayonara